Good Wednesday, Kevin, BJ, and Ben. Glad you're with us on the show. A lot to get to. Uh, live on ESPNCoastal.com. Also live streaming on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube at ESPN Coastal. So much to cover here on the show. John Shipley of Jaguar Report will join us. Who are the Jags looking uh, at, at the Combine here this week? Also, Sean Elliott, Georgia State head football coach, will join us. Spring practice underway. Uh, 7-1 finish to the season. And with the new members coming in, uh, that golf, uh, golf, excuse me, the Sunbelt East is awfully stout uh, there on that side of the conference. Also, Logan Booker, 960 The Ref, will join us to look at the Bulldogs there at the Combine. And there are a bunch of them, 14 UGA players at the Combine coming up this week as well. But as we wrapped up the show yesterday, uh, Rob Manfred chuckling, giggling, telling lies uh, up there at the podium as baseball starts uh, canceling games. And we had to go to our first guest today who has uh, covered baseball Long time, one of the biggest baseball fans I know has covered the game in and out for a long time. Bud Ellis joins us here on uh, Three It Out. Bud, uh, obviously, yesterday sucked for everybody involved, uh, I guess, uh, except for Rob, because uh, he was laughing at the whole deal. Uh, but tell us uh, your kind of thoughts when you hear the commissioner say, yeah, we couldn't get a deal done, so uh, the first two series at least are already done. Yeah, it sucks. I mean, there, there, there's no if, ands, or buts about it. And, and the, the image that I cannot get past, and look, I'll be 49 years old in a few days. I remember the 81 strike. I remember the 94 strike that canceled the World Series. I remember coming very close in 2002 and, and several other times. And, but the image that I cannot get out of my head is yesterday I'm watching this unfold and I'm thinking, this is a watershed moment in the history of Major League Baseball, which dates back to the 1860s. I'm talking a few years after the Civil War ended, for crying out loud. And Rob Manford is standing there grinning, giggling, like he's um, a schoolchild who's just been asked to the spring homecoming dance. And I'm just sitting here thinking, you are watching this great institution of American professional sports slide into an abyss from which I'm not sure there's a recovery for, and you're giggling. I, I, I don't find any inherent joy in the people around baseball and the people who love baseball that I've talked to in the past 24 hours certainly find no joy in this as well. I mean, you said it, Kev. It sucks. It really does. So how, how long does this play out, bud? I mean, I know we hear the first couple of series canceled, and we all hate that, but I think my fear is that we're not going to have uh, a kind of a revelation uh, in the next week or two. I mean, I hate to even talk it into existence, but could we be talking about more than just a couple of weeks of the regular season missed? Yeah, here, here's what's frustrating to me, BJ, right? I, I see – I know there's differences. The The – the, the collective bargaining tax, the CBT, there's still some differences there, right? There's a little bit of difference on minimum salary. There's a pretty big difference on this new pre-arbitration pool. But I just don't see the sides being that far apart, which just only ratchets up my frustration that Major League Baseball would impose this deadline, which was 5 o'clock on Monday, then extend when it seemed like there was some progress being made, the validity and the genuineness of that progress, I think it depends on which side you're listening to, 
And then to come back with a quote-unquote best and final offer, almost to take it or leave it by another arbitrary deadline on Tuesday, there's no reason the two sides shouldn't have spent today at Roger Dean Stadium in Jupiter continuing the conversations because I don't think they're that far off in, in some of the key areas. But to your point, now that things have paused, I'm really concerned. They, they would really need to have a CBA in place really probably by Sunday or Monday for the season to open on April 7th, which for the Braves would be the home opener. And, you know, otherwise you're looking at more than those initial two series being canceled. And I, I even question the legality of whether or not those series actually can be labeled as canceled or not. It seems like the MLB owners, with Rob Manford as their, um, uh, for, for, for lack of a better term, their spokesperson, I could use a lot of other words to describe that, and many others have, it, it seems like they're just kind of operating in their vacuum of kind of doing what they want to do, but what they're doing is they're plowing the sport into the ground. I think, and I'm not going to sit here and say, well, we're going to lose two months, or we're going to lose three months, but... I'm certainly not optimistic I'm going to be sitting at Truist Park on April 7th. Let me put it that way. But when you think about these owners, I understand that when it comes to them, I mean, it's going to be hard to get these uh, these billionaires to budge. And when they be saying things like, we're going to, quote, put out our best offer. But how much has the tide changed when you think about baseball as a whole? It used to be it was all about the teams. I think it's, all, I think it's more shifted to the players now. And these players understand that they have a little bit more leverage. I don't think the players wanted to lose games. But I think they're willing to tell these owners, look, man, we go, if we have to not play in games to show y'all that we got to do what's in the best, best interest of us, they're willing to do that. Yeah, I agree. And, and here, here's a couple fundamental differences in this whole situation. This is why I'm so concerned because this is unprecedented. Number one, this is not 1994 where you're catching a 30-second soundbite of Tom Glavin on SportsCenter. You have got players numbering in the hundreds who are taking to social media, which did not exist in 1994. They are taking to their Instagram, their Twitter accounts, any platform that they can get going on MLB Network Radio, and they're laying out their case. And to a man, they're saying, we want to play, and we just want a little more of the revenues to come to the players. We want to take better care of the players who have less experience, who are younger in the game, and all of that is, is good and well. What really gets murky about this is, as you guys well know, the Braves and the Toronto Blue Jays are the only two teams that are required to disclose their financials because they're part of publicly traded entities. The other 28 teams can keep their books private, and they can sit here and they can talk all they want about, well, we're not making any money or revenues aren't, aren't great for our team. But the fact of the matter is the sport continues to grow exponentially. Revenues continue to grow up exponentially. And while it's not a one-to-one that you know your player, player salaries and so forth are going to grow in lockstep with, with the owners, the, the asset allocation is, is so far, has gotten so far out of whack, partly the player's fault because they got taken to the cleaners in the past two CBAs. At some point, the players have decided to draw a line in the sand with this CBA, and, and what really worries me is I feel like from the player standpoint, they're wanting to right all the wrongs from the previous two collective bargaining negotiations, and that's probably unrealistic. But you're also dealing with the owners who, you know, by their nature have never been told no, 
and are all about corporate profits in the bottom line because most of the teams are owned by corporations nowadays. It's not like someone who grew up in a city and they end up owning the team and there's the civic pride factor. I even question how much some of these quote-unquote owners even care about baseball or love baseball other than what's on you know, the line in their profit and loss statement. And that's a problem in and of itself. But Ellis joining us here on three and out, and and, and but again, I just look at the other leagues that are out there, and they have managed to have caps, and it's been very profitable for all the leagues. Players are making money. I think if you look at what the uh, the NFL does, they have a you have to spend a certain percentage of the cap. Baseball doesn't have a cap, but there's also no floor, and I'm really surprised that has not been addressed. Where if you require some of these teams to pit to spend more money the mid-level guys are going to get more. The lower-level guys are, are, are going to get more, and I'm surprised that that has not been addressed more. It's all been focused on, hey, let's get the, the, the CBT raised up on the top end, which, I mean, if you've been paying attention to the sport, that really only affects like four teams, right? The, the Yankees, the Dodgers, uh, and, and maybe the Mets now, and you know maybe one other are going to even come close to spending the type of money that even puts them in jeopardy of that. So you're raising it for a couple of teams and the other teams are going to sit there and just keep shoving money in their pocket. Why is there no compromise there to say, and I think I said this to you on Twitter yesterday, why not come back and say, fine, we'll take your low cap, but you're going to put in a hard base of $70 million. And if you can't, Marlon, spend $70 million on payroll, sell the team. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I mean, you look at it from the standpoint of two teams were penalized by the CBT a year ago but there were four or five other teams whose payrolls came right within, I think, $3.2 million of that first CPT threshold, which I think was $210 million. So it's serving as a de facto cap. The problem with that is there's no floor. So if you're Bob Nunning and you own the Pirates, there's nothing that stops you from having a 45 or $50 million payroll. And, yeah, it might be great that someone doesn't go out unless you're Steve Cohen of the Mets, and spend $270, $280 million on a payroll. But if you don't have some sort of floor in place, then the difference between the haves and the have-nots continues to grow. And I think if a floor is in place, what you would see is eventually you would see some of these quote-unquote less engaged owners get out of the business of owning a team in the first place because they don't want to spend that money. But if you had a floor and you had a cap, then there's a range in between, say, $70 million to $210 million before penalties kick in. That would even the playing field a little more. And if you're a player and you're on the Pirates or the Orioles or the Mariners or the Marlins, you would feel like you're coming to camp with at least a puncher's chance to do something because your team has no choice but to be active in free agency. Your team has no choice but to pick one or two home ground players and extend them and build around Right now, there's no incentive and there's no penalty for not doing that, which is why you see these small market teams continue to kind of wallow in mediocrity year after year after year because, frankly, there's no incentive and there's no care around trying to put a competitive team on the field. And that just hurts the sport even more. Bud, from the standpoint of the Braves, uh, obviously should be celebrating a World Series, getting ready for the season as the defending champs. Uh, in addition to that, Freddie Freeman's free agency is out there. Nobody can talk about that, can uh, uh, kind of interact with Freddie Freeman. I know this is bad all the way around, but when you talk about the Braves, should be uh, World Series defending champs. They are, but should be starting the season with that distinction. And then uh, the Freddie Freeman stuff, I, 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 this is not good for the Braves either specifically, right? 
No, it's not. I mean, I mean, we know it's going to be just madness. I mean, if they if they agreed on a CBA tomorrow and they started the season April seventh, you're talking about a thirty day window to get you know free agents signed, you know, pull off trades, get your roster in shape, and oh by the way, not just get the roster in shape, but get guys on the roster in Florida and get them ready to you know go play baseball. I I, I what I what I hate about it the most is. I'm older, so I lived through 95 and and the thrill of coming out in 96 and being the defending champs and the ring ceremony and the banner raising on opening day. And opening day is just such a special moment for people who love baseball, people plan their trips around it. We've had tailgate parties where people come from 10, 12, 14 states for opening day, and that's coming off a 90-loss season. So you can imagine just how much buildup and anticipation there would be leading toward April 7th and celebrating the World Series championship and then the process of, of trying to repeat and, and being the kings for a year, if you will. And all of that's just shot now. And, and again, it, it, it just stinks. And, but, again, this is, this is a byproduct of, of, in my opinion, the fact that I think there's so, many, there's so much on the league side, the owner's side, and Rob Manfred – that don't see the inherent value of, you know, opening day and what it means to so many people. The fact that there's so many hundreds of thousands of people that it takes to put on major league games across the 30 stadiums across America and Toronto who now aren't going to be getting those paychecks in April. Yeah, the players aren't getting paid. The owners aren't getting revenues for games canceled. But what about the person who sells the beer in the concession stand, the person who drags the infield, the person who helps you park your car? All of those people are losing out as well, and those are people that can't afford it. And it, it's just it, – it, it, it leaves me with a very bad taste in my mouth when I think just how great baseball is, how important it is to people as part of their daily routine for six months out of the year, whether the team is a 90-win team or a 90-loss team. And when you think about, guys, what we've been through the past couple of years, some of the things going on in the world right now, it's really hard to sit here and rationalize the fact that this is happening. But when I think about two years ago in the midst of a global emergency, when the pandemic hit and baseball kept pushing back the start date, pushing back the start date so that they wouldn't have a 90 game season or a hundred game season. At the end of the day, it was about only being able to pay the players for the least amount of games possible. I think in retrospect, we all could see something like this coming. But what is it going to take to get these owners to realize that perception is not reality anymore? I know you mentioned, I mean, all the different all the different people it affects, not just the guys, you know, that's playing, but so many you know, from the guys parking the cars, you talk about the people in concession, so many. What is it going to take to get these owners to realize, man, this ain't back in the day. These players have platforms, and every day, every day miss is not just affecting the product on the field. It affects what it takes to put that product on the field. Exactly, Ben. And that's the thing for me is if, if, if someone from the Players Association said, what would you do? I would say, turn up the pressure even more. I would continue to use the social media as platforms because not only are fans upset, you know, the players are upset. They want to play. I mean, you know, I know there's people out there who think, oh, well, they're making a lot of money to play a kid's game. Well, this is not millionaires versus billionaires. That's just an ignorant statement. This is more about the health and longevity of the sport and taking care of the next generation of players. And again, the owners are, the owners are invested financially, but they're not invested any other way with the growth of the sport, the marketing of the sport, the marketing of stars. I mean, 
you can make the point that baseball is heading down the road to become a niche sport anyway. You know, I, 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 just, I mean, I look at MLS, for example. I mean, I, I would be willing to bet 10 years from now if things don't change, there will be more casual sports fans across this country who watch Atlanta United play on a Wednesday night on national TV and know who Joseph Martinez is than watch the Braves and know who Ronald Acuna Jr. is. And as a baseball guy, that scares me. But what I would also do is I would make sure that Major League Baseball gets a proposal from the Players Association immediately. Major League Baseball give that quote-unquote best and final proposal before the meetings broke up yesterday. Well, you know what? If I'm the Players Association, I'm coming back with another proposal. And by doing that, I'm saying we want to solve this. We want to reach a deal and do everything you can to keep the heat, the pressure, the social media presence, everything. Squarely pushing the owners at some point, something has to give. Oh, but finally, uh, and something I, I wish would give when it's all said and done is have Rob Manfred do something else uh, with his time. And and again, I, you yeah. look around. I mean, you look around the uh, the leagues. Players don't like Roger Goodell in the NFL, but you know what? He gets deals done, and it's all about do not tarnish the shield. Right? Roger Goodell understands that. Players understand that. We may not get along and see eye to eye. You don't tarnish the shield. That's how we make our money. Adam Silver understands that in the NBA, the players sell the product, and we have to make sure we get along and take care of, uh, of one another so that we can continue to grow the game. Rob Manfred called the ultimate prize in your sport a piece of metal. He's out there, you know, kind of, uh, you, know, I, you know, kind of, as you said, chuckling yesterday at the thought of, at the, not the thought, but the doing of canceling games. I know he carries the water for the owners, but... I, I, I mean, at some point, as you said, people have been clamoring in baseball, can you please have somebody that cares about baseball, that likes baseball, running the sport? People didn't like Bud Selig, but you could tell by the way he acted and talked, Bud cared about the game. He was a former yeah. owner who cared about the direction of the, of, of the game. Whether you liked the way he handled it or not, he was about protecting Major League Baseball and doing what he thought was best. Th- that's not the case with this clown. And again, I, I, what is it going to take to get him out of there at the end of the day? I mean, I mean, in a best-case world, Rob Manford realizes that he ha- he, he, this cannot go on for long, and he does what he can. He does what he can do to get a deal done, and once that happens, then the owners fire him, right? Look, we all know the commissioner serves the owners, and, and, and that's all well and good, but you have to have someone in that position like Bud Seeley who truly has a vested interest in the game. Rob Manford makes Gary Bettman look great, and as a Thrasher's fan, I can tell you that's probably the nicest thing I've ever said about Gary Bettman, but I would take him 10 times over 10 over Rob Manford. Rob Manford is, in my opinion, the worst person to ever have any level of influence in the history of Major League Baseball, and the ultimate demise of Major League Baseball very well may come with him steering the ship because, yeah, he works for the owners, but at the end of the day, the commissioner is supposed to be the steward to carry the game forward. And Rob Manford is failing miserably at that right now, and something has got to change and soon. Bud Ellis, our guest here on 3 and Out, Bud. Appreciate the time. Thanks so much. All right, boys. Take care. We'll come back as baseball again stands in peril. What's next? We'll break that down. John Shipley, Jaguar Report, set to join us later this hour as well. It's Good to have you here, three and out on this Wednesday. We'll hear from John Shipley, Jaguar Report, coming up in just a few minutes as uh, the combine going on this week. What are the Jags looking to do there? A lot of folks think they're going 
uh, offensive lineman, offensive tackle, but might it not be the one that everybody initially thought, BJ and Ben? We'll get to that coming up in just a little bit. And again, good to have Bud on. And uh, you look at the game of baseball, and and there's a lot of people that do care about baseball. And uh, it's just amazing that it got to this point. And as Bud said, what's what's next for baseball? Well, if I'm the players, you need to put a proposal out there and put it back in the because the owners are doing everything they can to paint it as your fault. Uh, if you're the players. And at the end of the day, they're the ones that have put the lock on the door, uh, not the players. Uh, the owners control when this thing ends from if they want to go back and say, let's go back to the rules in place, keep negotiating, play ball. They could do that. They don't want to. So I find the players keep putting it on the owners to make a move and put it in their court because at the end of the day, they can continue, as we talked about this with you yesterday, Ben, the players can continue seeing that narrative of we're not doing this. They are. We have said be fair. They're not being fair. They're locking us out. Take the lock off the door. We're there tomorrow. But you don't want to. So I would keep putting it in their court to try to make something happen. I think I think uh I think that's uh that's just the beginning of what the players got to do. The players can't flinch at this point. I think sometimes when you start talking about negotiations, I think we don't really know what it is because we just looking at we just get to the end, just get to the end, just get to the end. These players are saying, look, we're doing this, we can't we can't forget. I heard somebody say, "Man, listen. People don't. People don't. Uh, people don't. People don't get tired of. Uh, you know. Uh, people don't get tired because of what they're doing. They get tired because they forgot why they're doing. It. You can't forget why you're doing this. These owners don't see you as a BJ. We always say this. These owners don't see the players as an asset. They think you can run anybody out there. So why are you marketing players then? Why certain? Why certain teams jersey sales with a certain player? What it is? But it goes back to something Bud said. Look how many lives you affect. Not just the twenty six guys you employ." The hundreds of thousands of people across the country that had to put this game on, the security and vending and parking and so on and so forth. So if you are the players, listen, use social media for what social media does. Cause somebody in that up there with them owners has a social media account. I don't think that I don't think the owners do, and I don't think the owners care. But you got to make them care. But you can't forget why you do because if the players just give in all of a sudden, well, what was all this for? You can't just do it. But I respect the players. It's been the owners the whole time. And for some reason, man, they think it's business as usual, and it is not at this point. I mean, Kevin, do you share Bud's? I know you and him have both followed the game for yeah. for a long time. And uh, do you share his pessimism? I don't even know that. Frustration? Anxiety? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, there's frustration. to where we are. Yeah, there, no, there's definitely frustration because you feel like the ones in charge, and by, by ones in charge, I know uh, people get frustrated with the players uh, at times, but uh, I, I think there is a overwhelming sentiment that, Rob Manfred is not good at his job from from a lot of fans and a lot of people who think he is not doing a good job. One of stewarding the game, um, you know, part of Roger Goodell, we talked about this, but part of Roger Goodell's job as commissioner of the NFL, yeah, he carries the water for the owners, but his job is to grow the game. His job is to make sure that his players are marketed. Why? Because they all make money when they do that. When you have p- people who want to buy those jerseys, want to come watch those guys play, want to go watch it, they all make money doing that. It's his job to do that. And and I, Rob Manfred doesn't do that. Rob Manfred is about the bottom line. He is not about growing baseball because everything he does is antithesis of that. He does not care about what happens with the game. He is simply a, a, a – if you look at Rob Manfred's background, I think Rob Manfred com- comes from a background of he is a uh, legal-like negotiator. He doesn't have a baseball background. That's why people say he doesn't like baseball. He's, 
Like he's, like like uh, like Beef Smith uh, he's for the NFL like he's uh, a NFL suit. PA president. Yeah, yeah, he's a suit. He's not a guy that has any reason to care one way or another. As long as the money rolls in, what do I give a rip? You know, probably internally, I got to put on a front. But he doesn't even do that. When you call the World Series, hey, it's just a piece of money. you cannot. You have to have the self awareness to say I represent the sport. You cannot do that. Roger Goodell will never refer to the Lombardi Trophy as just that 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 hunk of metal sitting over there. No, that's the prize that everybody in his league is trying to get. That is the whole point of the Super Bowl. That is the whole point of the whole sport. You don't do that. And he has no awareness and no clue. And again, that's that is a problem. When people like that, and you have owners, as he said, who look at baseball as a investment portfolio rather than uh, while it can be that, something they also want to make sure succeeds and continues to do well and care about the team, I think that's part of the problem uh, as well. And, uh, again, I, I worry that it doesn't matter what kind of deal gets passed. You haven't addressed the main problem, which is teams will continue to pocket money rather than spend it on the field at the bottom. The Yankees will always spend money. The Red Sox will always spend money. Why? Because they're trying to outdo each other. The Dodgers will always spend money. Orioles? Marlins, they ain't always going to spend money. Derek Jeter just quit because they wouldn't spend 15 more million. That's a problem. I mean, that is a problem. When you are building a competitive team and it comes time to pay guys that have made you better, you need to pay them to keep them so you can win. And they won't do that. And I think that is the ultimate problem. So no, if you don't have some kind of floor in there, I, I think it's going to be another bad deal long-term for the game. And we're going to be right back where we started at the end of this next CBA, wondering why bad teams still stink. We've got John Shipley. Uh, Jaguar report coming up right around the corner. Combine is happening. Three and out on this Wednesday. Kevin BJ and Ben NFL Combine ongoing. The Jags will be first up in the draft at number one. But where do they go? Who are they looking at this week? John Shipley, Jaguar report, joins us here on three and out. Uh, John, welcome. Who are the Jags kind of got their eyes on there at the Combine this week? Yeah, I, I think, you know, really was made obvious by general manager Trent Balky yesterday that you know, the two positions the Jaguars are really going to look at, especially at number one overall, offensive tackle and edge rusher. You know, I, I think, you know, guys like Ikem McQuanu from NC State, you know, Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan, and Kayvon Thibodeau from Oregon, I, I think those are all guys that they're going to pay close attention to. But outside of that, you know, even the guys beyond there, you know, guys like Tulsa's Tyler Johnson or even FSU's Jermaine Johnson, you know, a really talented offensive lineman and a really talented edge rusher, respectively. And then, you know, I think receivers and tight ends are two other groups that Jaguars are going to be looking hard at. Uh, Bulky mentioned yesterday he thinks the receiver group is one of the deepest groups in this year's draft and that really the priority for the Jaguars offseason was to get more explosive on the offensive side of the ball. You know, it's it's hard for any team to, you know, consistently have 16, 17 plate drives where they just grind it out. You know, eventually you need explosive plays on offense and the Jaguars simply didn't get that last year. So I, w- I would think offensive line, pass rusher, and wide receiver and tight end are other positions the Jaguars are going to especially focus on this week in Indianapolis. If the Jaguars are looking at offensive tackle or edge rusher at number one overall, is there a consensus in the building as to who the top edge rusher is or who the top tackle is? I don't believe so. I think you can look at you know past trends from both Trent Baalke and head coach Doug Peterson to kind of make your own assumptions. And if I was just, you know, to do that, and this is just me really going off, you know, what we know about each of them and their preferences and what they've done in the past, I would think Bulky would be a really big Aiden Hutchinson guy. You know, he has the motor, he has the production, 
you know, he's obviously seen as kind of, you know, a football nut and a true grinder. Whereas, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau, for as immensely talented as he is, you know, he, he is somebody who, you know, he doesn't have the production of a guy like Aiden Hutchinson. He's somebody who, you know, clearly has a different type of personality. That's not a knock on him, but just looking at guys that Trent Bulky has drafted in the past, Hutchinson seems like his type of guy. And then in terms of the offensive line, it, that, that's a tough one because I do think a guy like Evan Neal obviously presents the most balance and most versatility. But Doug Peterson, you know, his time with the Eagles really, really placed a big emphasis on mobility along the offensive line. And that would lead me to believe, you know, especially if they're going to run on some blocking scheme, that a guy like Ekwanu would make a lot of sense for them. You know, he's a lot more agile than Neal. He's, he's obviously, you know, a good bit lighter. You know, they're, they're just two different types of players. So I would think Hutchinson and Ekwanu would be the two guys that make sense just going off the history of Peterson and Balky. How much more comfortable is this year's, you know, uh, just uh, going into combine, knowing you got a guy like Doug Peterson, obviously has won a Super Bowl, obviously well-respected throughout the National Football League, but understands how to build with the young quarterback and obviously having low, uh, having him at the helm, even if you got to work hand-in-hand with Trip Balky. I mean, the Jags organization got to feel better knowing you got a guy like that that's going to be helping, you know, uh, move things in the right direction. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, Sean Khan, uh, he put out a statement actually yesterday because he, you know, he had made an announcement that the team wasn't going to hire an executive vice president to really, you know, work above Balky and Peterson. And in that statement, you know, he kind of made it clear that the reason he wasn't going to be making that extra hire was because he's been so impressed with, you know, kind of the 180 that they've done internally under Peterson in just three weeks. So I, I think, you know, just from a leadership and a culture perspective, I think Peterson is a breath of fresh air and has been since he walked in the building. I think, you know, both in public and behind closed doors that he's been, you know, simply a much better leader than, you know, Urban Meyer ever, you know, really was for the Jaguars. You know, Urban Meyer was really, you know, a used car salesman of sorts. You know, he was not what the Jaguars thought they were getting. Whereas Peterson, I think, you know, it's clear that, he is the right kind of leader that you want in a head coach, and it really just comes down to, you know, can he win on Sundays now? That being said, uh, John, does Doug Peterson get the final say on uh, who the Jags draft here? I don't believe so. I, but the big word, you know, with both Balky and Peterson has been collaboration. Uh, I, I think that, you know, especially after Peterson's time in Philadelphia where, you know, there were a lot of reports and rumors that, you know, his and Harry Roseman's relationship kind of deteriorated. I would think that he would want some considerable sway in terms of personnel, and I do think he has that sway. You know, I think the Jaguars not adding an EVP to really, you know, have the final say indicates that Peterson is going to have a lot of power. But I really do think it's going to be, you know, a true partnership between the two. I don't think it's going to be a case where, you know, one guy is answering to the other, you know, instead I think it's going to be, you know, a true, you know, a true duo, a true partnership where, both guys are really kind of pulling equal weight and have, you know, equal say in the organization. As the draft goes on, especially, is Jacksonville just going to pick the best player available, or are there specific positional needs that this team has to address? Yeah, I, I think uh, especially early on that they, they'll go best player available. You saw that last season when, you know, the, the Jaguars, I mean, just looking at some of the picks that they made last year, you know, there's a three-pick uh, streak, you know, with Travis Etienne, Tyson Campbell, and Walker Little, where the Jaguars pick players at positions that weren't exactly seen as pressing needs. You know, they already had Cam Robinson at left tackle. They already had James Robinson at running back. They had, at the time, C.J. Henderson and Shaquille Griffin at cornerback. Obviously, C.J. ended up getting traded, 
But I, I, I think the Jaguars, you know, and Balky specifically kind of showed last year that they're going to go with the best player available and the highest guy on their board. Uh, I do think that you're going to see them, you know, try to find some answers in terms of playmakers on defense and offense, you know, both at pass rusher, at right receiver. But I think ultimately you're going to see them really trust their board and go with who they think is the best overall player instead of saying we have to take this specific position. Left tackle, pass rusher, tight end, linebacker, safety. They got a lot of needs. When it comes to the draft, obviously – uh, with the number one overall, I mean, with the number one overall pick, they're trying to go uh, pass rusher or left tackle. But as far as like those other picks, I mean, the top, I think they got like four or five picks in the top seventy-five picks. Are they trying to get guys that's come in competing for starting jobs, or are they trying to go ahead and draft starters even if they are rookies? I think that they're trying to draft starters. I really do. I mean, you you look at the Jaguars roster, and especially with some of the guys that are set to hit free agency, you know, like DJ Chuck at receiver like Cam Robinson at left tackle. I, I think they're trying to get guys who really, you know, can come in and make an impact right away because that's what the Jaguars need. You know, they can't have it like last year where most of the rookie class, you know, didn't play until the last couple weeks uh, of the season. You know, guys like Walker Little and Andre Cisco only made a handful of starts despite being, you know, top 70 picks. So I, I think overall they're going to do, you know, really everything in their power to get guys who – you know, can make an impact right away because that's what the Jaguars need. John Shipley, Jaguar Report. Jordan is here on 3 and Out. And, John, through this draft process, through free agency, how much better could the Jags make themselves in a division where Houston's a mess? Uh, I don't know how many people are afraid of Indianapolis. And you just saw the Titans with Tannehill. They, they had to buy but lost in the first round. How much progress could be made with a good draft and a, and a good run at free agency, which, uh, again, they have a lot of money to spend? Yeah, no, I, I really do think progress, a lot of progress can be made. You know, I, I, I know this was said about the Jaguars last year, and it forced a lot of people, you know, myself included, the E-Crow, but I think there are two big differences now. The first difference is obviously uh, comparing Doug Peterson to Urban Meyer. Uh, Peterson is clearly, you know, in every aspect of being a head coach, both, you know, on game day and off the field, it's clearly a better fit to be a head coach and lead a franchise than Urban Meyer was. And uh, he's already a guy who has done it at a high level. I mean, you know, even his worst year in Philadelphia was better than, you know, some of the best years that some Jaguars coaches have had in recent years. And then the secondly, I think, you know, Trevor Lawrence going into his second year is big. You know, it's hard, you know, to draft a rookie quarterback and win right away. But I think, you know, having Lawrence making 17 starts, you know, going through really all of those trials and tribulations last year and getting that much needed experience, I think is going to end up, being the best thing for the Jaguars because, you know, he's going to be ready to hit the ground running in year two under Peterson. So I, I think there is a path to them making noise in 2022. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they were still, you know, another year and offseason away. But I just think the the, the the addition of Peterson and the development and mature maturation of Lawrence uh, will really, you know, work in their favor. You referenced Trevor Lawrence. How many of these draft picks will be made with kind of – him in mind, adding playmakers, adding offensive linemen to help him take a step forward? I, th- I think anytime you know, you're taking a player on offense, it's you know, under the guise of how can we help the quarterback. And I, I think that's the biggest thing the Jaguars are going to focus on this offseason because, you know, one way or another, they didn't do enough to help Lawrence last season. You know, he didn't have enough weapons. He didn't have, you know, good enough protection. He didn't have good coaching. He didn't have a great scheme. So I think really everything the Jaguars do, you know, moving forward will be from – you know, a perspective of how can we help, you know, Trevor Lawrence get better. So I, I think, you know, especially with the draft and even, you know, with the overall pick, 
you know, that's what the Jaguars will have to weigh, you know, is, okay, do we want to take a pass rusher and bolster their defense, or do we want to, you know, do what can make Trevor Lawrence the best quarterback he can be? And I really do think they'll lean toward the latter. New coach, back-to-back number one overall picks, hopefully get a healthy Travis Etienne in an in a AFC South. That's, you know, that's, uh, I mean, up for them to try to go out there and compete. Where do you think the state of the Jaguars are right now as we see it? Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned Etienne because, you know, he's the guy who, you know, should be one of the more important players. They said yesterday he's, uh, you know, ahead of track on his recovery, and that that's what they need. You know, they need young players like him to take a step forward and really impress in 2022. And right now, you know, I would say the state of the Jaguars is, you know, it's it's more hopeful than I think it was, you know, say a month, month and a half ago. I think, you know, Doug Peterson has done a lot to inspire confidence, you know, both inside and outside the building, but – you know, this is also, you know, a base who heard similar things about Urban Meyer last year. So I'd say the state of the Jaguars is, you know, it's a hopeful one with, you know, looks to improvement. But people are also in kind of, you know, wait and show me mode. Finally, the Jacksonville Jaguars are going to be in the Hall of Fame game later this year. Yeah, no, no, they, they will be. It will actually be there. It will be their second time, but the first one since 1995 there first ever game was the Hall of Fame game of them and the Carolina Panthers. And it, it, it's kind of wild that, you know, that their first ever game, Tony Bozzelli's first, you know, ever game as a Jaguar. And now they're returning, you know, however many years later with Bozzelli now set to be a member of the Hall of Fame. And you know, I, I, I really think, you know, it's, it's a momentous time, you know, for the Jaguars as an organization. You know, I, I, I know, you know, there's so many franchises that have, you know, players in the Hall of Fame, you know, players who they could guy who turned out to be one of the NFL's best of his time. Until now, the Jaguars didn't have that. You know, everybody knew how good Tony Bozzelli was, but, you know, until you're actually inducted into the Hall of Fame, you know, you're, you're just kind of missing that prestige. And the Jaguars, they now finally have it. You know, Bozzelli, you know, he, he's not just the first guy uh, to be a Jaguar drafted into the Hall of Fame. He's the first Jaguar. So the, the fact that that guy is the one who is making the Hall of Fame I think it really speaks volumes to uh, the Jaguars and is a big reason for celebration. John Shipley, Jaguar Report, our guest here on 3 and Out. John, appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. John Shipley, again, Jaguar Report, joining us here on 3 and Out. we got plenty more to come here on this Wednesday. Kevin, BJ, and Ben will take three right around the corner. Still to come on the show, we'll hear from Sean Elliott. Head football coach at Georgia State. They're underway for spring practice. They finished the season 7-1. and one. Also, Logan Booker going to join us from 960 The Ref. We'll look at 14 Georgia players at the Combine this week. So he will join us coming up final hour of the program. But so much going on. And, Ben, I know you have a big event coming up on Saturday that uh, we've been talking about. And it's, uh, it's finally going to be here in a couple of days. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. My first ever Money Matters event at uh, East Georgia State College. On March the 5th, this Saturday, doors open up from 9.30. We're going to be there from 9.30 to 2.30. Going to be uh, breakout sessions. Uh, going to be a guest speakers. Going to be cash prizes. Uh, you know, we're going to get a chance to come in and just fellowship young men and grown men, just talking about the importance of what money does and how we how we need to have it uh, for to secure our futures in the present. But it's going to be a lot of fun. Make sure you still got a chance to go and register at www.theuncommoncru.com. Dot com. But it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun from breakout sessions to guest speakers 
The cash prizes, uh, breakfast and lunch will be served and might have a surprise at the end. I don't want to, I don't want to give it away uh, uh, too early, but yes, go to www.theuncommoncru for the to register free yep. event. By the way, for the first. E- the first ever Money Matters event being held at East Georgia State College, March the 5th, 9.30 to 2.30. Awesome. Be surprised if B.J. Bennett's going to share all of life's secrets at the very end. Listen, very- we might have to be, <laughs> listen, B.J. Bennett will be in the house, and we might have to ask him just to come on stage because he can't tell us no. B.J., come on up and say a couple of words. About about money? I mean, I, I listen, listen, I, I, somebody, listen, talk, talk about, talk about Kevin Thomas cheese. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll introduce Kevin. We ain't trying to scare these young men. There you go. We got more, hey, we got more to come here on the show. We'll take three right around the corner and more in hour number two. Don't go anywhere. Hit us up on Twitter at Pigskin Radio. We are streaming live as well at ESPNCoastal.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Coming. Right- Good to have you back. Hour two here on Three and Out. A lot to get to this hour. Of course, the combine going on, of course. Major League Baseball in an official work stoppage uh, now as they have canceled the first two series of the season, so we'll get to that. But first, as we do every day this time, let's take three here on three and out. All right, fellas, take one. Which team's pick in the top ten of the draft will most shape the first round? Every year, you know, we kind of think we know, and then somebody makes a pick, and all of a sudden there's a run on DNs. All of a sudden, run on quarterbacks. Something Changes that reshifts the entire first round, and it doesn't kind of go to chalk. Who's that team here in the first round, in the top ten? Yeah, I think it's Houston at three, because I think that we know probably Jacksonville is taking an offensive tackle. We know probably Detroit is taking a defensive end, an edge rusher at number two. Houston, I don't know. I I, I think Houston is in a position where they could just take, I mean, if you're three, you're going to get best player available for the most part, but you could take a Kyle Hamilton, the safety. Uh, you could take whichever one of the edge rushers or offensive tackles are still left on the board. You could you could take a quarterback. You could trade back. As, as Houston has so many needs, they might try to trade back for a team that is in love with a quarterback, try to get an extra second or third or a couple of more picks. Uh, I think I think there's some unpredictability with 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 Houston. Obviously, Lovey Smith. He, he has a roster that, that needs a lot of talent, needs a lot of help, and maybe more picks is the way to go. So I think they might be a likely trade-back candidate. Um, anything from, again, one of the tackles, one of the edge rushers, uh, you know, maybe maybe a quarterback. I, I just think you, you kind of feel like you know what Jacksonville is going to do. You kind of feel like you know what Detroit is going to do. Houston at three, there doesn't seem to be a great consensus right now. For me, I think it's going to be number six, Carolina. I think Carolina is going to get the first quarterback off the board. I mean, BJ, I, I like what you're saying about Houston, but I just don't – I mean, Houston needs so much, and the last thing that's going to help them get out of the dark ages is a quarterback. So I don't I don't think they're going to get a quarterback, especially because they, they're going to have to deal uh, Deshaun Watson and see what they can get back for him, maybe they have some future picks. But I think it's going to be number six of Carolina. You look at Carolina's situation. I mean, Sam, traded for Sam Darnold. Didn't work. Brought back Cam Newton, Mr. Coming Home, didn't work. PJ, you know, P, you know, PJ Walker is, is, is a guy that was obviously had a, you know, was incredible in the AFL and different things. It's, it's not working. And if you if you go to any team, you talk about the NFC South, what are you gonna need to compete? You're gonna need a solid quarterback. What don't they have right now? They don't have a solid quarterback. Cam Newton is still online talking about I'm trying to go to a good situation. Cam, we've seen you the last couple of years, and people don't just go from real bad to real good, especially when you're getting older. So for me, I think it's going to be number six. I think the first quarterback to come off the board will be a number six. I think it's probably going to be Kenny Pickett. I've heard a lot of rumbling saying 
Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett and all. The, I think it's going to be Kenny Pickett. I think nobody did more for their draft stock in 2021 than Kenny Pickett. But yes, for me, I think number six, Kevin will probably start because you know once the first quarterback comes, uh oh, those yep. other guys they kind of move up if they had the quarterback position. Because now, I mean, it, with so much turmoil at the quarterback position in the NFL, you know, you you going if the if the veteran ain't getting done, let's see if we can do it with the rookie. But for me, give me number six, them Panthers. Yeah, they got to got to start moving up. Grab it. I, I'm going to agree with BJ and say that it's Houston at three. Uh, for a lot of the reasons he mentioned, but my number one B would be Detroit at two because if anybody's going to do something crazy, it might be Detroit. It might be. It might be Detroit. It might be. Hey, man, you guys need to get up to the quarterback, <laughs> and we're going to take a safety. All right. Oh, yeah. Moving along. So oh, yeah. It could kind of uh, throw, throw a wrench in things, but I, I will stick with Houston there as the answer. Take two, what are realistic expectations for a first-round pick in this draft? I think you have to come in and be an impact player right away. And, and, and I don't know that that, in my time covering the draft, has always been the case. I think you used to hear, you know, the, the term, hey, project, developmental player, whatever. I don't, I don't think you see that anymore. I mean, when I read the mock drafts and you have the bios or, or kind of the descriptions of the pick, it doesn't say, hey, a chance to be a great player down the line. It's you're stepping in right away. I mean, much like, and I understand it's number one overall, but if you're if you're Evan Neal, you're coming in to be the guy to build around uh, and 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 uh, you know be a foundational piece for Trevor Lawrence. If you're uh, Kayvon Thibodeau and you go to the Falcons at eight, you're coming in to solve a generational inconsistency at the pass rushing position. I mean, even guys that we've seen kind of middle of the first round projections, if it's a Tyler Linderbaum or a uh, Jermaine Johnson or one of these receivers, a Traylon Burks. You're expected to come in and be a prominent leading producer right away. And sometimes I think I, I think some of that might be a lot to ask. I mean, you can certainly speak to that better than me. But I think if you're a first-round pick with all the hype, all the attention, all the social media coverage, uh, the expectations, I mean, we've been talking about these players throughout their entire college career, then the whole pre-draft process, you're already a star. And I think the expectations, especially in – you may say, hey, well, if you're pick 35, you're a couple of picks dead. Yeah, but there's something about being a first-round pick where people just expect more. I think you got to come in and play like a vet. I think the one thing these first-round picks need to understand is you walking out of college, walking into a, one of these NFL franchises, one of these cities, and you got to play like a vet. Fair or unfair? I mean, you talk about the quarterback position. These guys are coming in right away. They're being starters. Ain't no, no, no more is the days of, hey, man, uh, how long is it going to take? He ain't watching. He's going right out there. If you had the receiver position, my goodness, you took my pressure being put on you. The Justin Jeffersons of the world, the Jamal Chases of the world, the T. Higgins of the world, these guys are coming in not just playing. They're top five, top ten in the league, all pro-type seasons. As you talk about that left tackle position, you got to go out there and say, look, we got to not know you out there because that's how that's how good you're playing. But I will say to be the, to be a first-round pick means you got to be a potential face of a franchise regardless of the position, regardless of what it is. I mean, when I think about the Rams, I don't think about I don't think about Matthew Stafford first. I think about Aaron Donald. He is the face of that franchise, even with a guy like Matthew Stafford. You know, and I just think that sometimes when you think about how good players are, fair or unfair, you gonna get judged off the previous uh, guys that came in because it used to be if first round picks are kind of eh, they give you a mulligan. I know more. They looking at you like, what's wrong yep. with you? So I do think you got to come in and play like a seasoned vet. Stephon Diggs got moved to Buffalo before Justin and Justin Jefferson coming the next year, having missed a beat. Not at, not at the receiver position. So I, I do think first-round picks have the most pressure on them because, one, you're the most visible. Two, you're making the most money. And three, you should be the most polished. Jump out there and let, let, let's get it going. I mean, Jamar Chase couldn't catch nothing in the preseason. How did that work regular season? 
Oh, that's right. Call everything. So, yes, you got to got to play like a seasoned vet. Yeah, when the lights came on, it was a different story. I would say everything you guys have said, you got to have somebody that can start and get it done. You want somebody that's going to be around longer than the rookie contract, not a Vic Beasley who is like, hey, we drafted you number one, and now that you're off that rookie deal, we're kind of looking to get move on. I mean, you want somebody because that's considered a swing and a miss yes. by a franchise when you don't stick around for a second contract. And as Ben said, I think more importantly, one of the faces – of your franchise, especially if you are in the top 10. You better become a face of a franchise. Otherwise, whoops. All right, moving along. Take three. What 40-yard dash time do you consider fast? But you were telling me the other day that what, like uh, some say, hey, 4-4 four, four is not even really that fast yeah, anymore. Yeah. I, I, it obviously depends on position. Okay, now, as we do every every year at this time, not everybody runs a four four. Right. I'm talking about like everybody who ever outside played, of this office. Yeah, I was saying case. everybody we have the fastest who's ever played high school football runs a four four. Yes. And look, a lot of fast guy. Four four is. I mean, you're one of the fastest people in the world. Yes, you, I mean, I mean, if you're running a four four, yeah, uh, I, man, skill position. I I still think if you're in the four fives, I do. I I still think that is really really fast. I mean, even as a wide receiver, and that may not be the status quo anymore, or you know the the headline isn't going to be so-and-so runs a 4-5-5. But I know Christian was talking about, like, Debo Samuel. He was a 4-5 guy. Look at what he's doing. I think is as long as you kind of – It's kinda, not disrespectful. As long as you kind of meet If you that, say that's not that, fast. Well, but. but it is fast. I mean, if you if you meet that threshold, like if you're talking about wide receiver, corner, running back, kind of the elite speed positions, I think if you're in the 4-5 now certainly you get into the 4-4s, I think, I think there's still a magic to 4-4, right? When you say – uh, four four one, four four five, whatever. That gets people talking. That gets people's attention. You go sub four four. I mean, that's a that's a different level. You are truly elite from a speed standpoint. But I do think we are quick. Like when you watch the combine and a running back will run a four two, or excuse me, a four five two, and you go, oh man, that's not that fast. No, that is fast. That is very fast. So, uh, shout out to the guys in the four fives. That's that's still very fast. Four six four seven. I, I got to tell people something. Look, look, these are the best athletes coming out of college. You know why we go, oh, boy, he was moving. You don't see 4-4 four, four that much, not even in the combine. You don't see 4-3 that much. And if you run a 4-2, my goodness. It's, it's, listen, it's 4-6, it's 4-7. Four, four, That's extremely fast. Rich Eisen every year does the run with Rich. Every year he does it. But look at what they do. They'll say, all right, Rich, we're going to let you start. Rich is halfway during the 40 before the other guy – the, the, the actual athlete even starts. Look how fast he runs by him. I don't think people understand. Sub four, sub five, uh, four is, is extremely fast. That's a lot of weight moving. Ask any, ask any doctor. People that big don't supposed to move that fast. You got a receiver that's two hundred pounds running a four six. Then you got a two hundred and fifty pound, sixty pound man running four six. And you like, well, wait a minute, who's slow? No, 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 no. You're gonna run as fast. I want to listen. I love. When you see four 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 three, you go, ooh, that dude was moving. Yeah. But even when you say, man, that dude ain't as fast he thought, he is still blazing fast compared to 99.9% of the of America. It is four five four. It is, it is, it is around like the normalcy of seeing like running backs running four five. No, that's fast. Because when you look at them on tape, ain't nobody catching them. So I do think it's around the four BJ, the four five to the four seven range. Now, sometimes you get you get a freaking mutant. You get a you get a you get a freak. Like Calvin Johnson, 6'5", 235 pounds, running the 4'3". That's freakish. He was also a first battle Hall of Famer. It's like it correlates with what he just did to how he plays. 
And sometimes you get a Dontario, a Dontari Poe doing something crazy, right? You get a Jadavion Clowney. These are freaks we are talking about. 4'6", 4'7", 4'8", that's probably what you're going to be. That's fine because the people say, man, I thought I was faster than that. Take the other, take all the athletes, take all the people that go to the gyms that work out every day, that eat, the, you know, the fruit smoothies, and put them on the line. They're getting smoked, 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 smoked. So yes, BJ and Kevin, I'm sorry that. I mean, I was we, talking about football speed. I, look, yes, obviously, rate, you know, non-athletes, you're not, you're not anywhere well, near well, that. And what I'm saying is too, these these guys, all they've done the last two or three months is get ready for the combine. That's the fast they're gonna run. You know, Derek Henry ran a four five when he came out. That's a lot of man coming at you. And four or five. So all I'm saying is, when people saying, I thought he was faster than that. Well, you don't get your behind up out of here with that nonsense. <laughs> that boy was smooth. And sometimes, Kevin, BJ, isn't it different? Y'all been to camps. When you see a four or five in person, it don't look like a four. Look, I, he just ran a four or five because he was moving. So, yeah, man, I mean, hey, four fours are rare. Four threes are even more rare. Four twos, I, I mean, you talking about, you know, the last time I checked with Chris Johnson, four two four, I know – Somebody might have gotten faster than that. He also rushed for 2,000 yards in the NFL. No, if you're fast and you can't get open, it's a waste. I, I'm just going to tell you. So, But I do think, watch how many 4.5s, 4.6s you see regardless of position. And listen, if you were over 300 pounds in the 4.8s, get that man his money. I don't even know why they got you running 40s just to show off how athletic you are. Because like I said, if you're running 40 yards and you're um, you an offensive lineman, somebody just got a pick or you just running down for a long touchdown pass, Either way, you shouldn't be running that fast, man. You got guys right in front of you. <laughs> yeah, I, I said in the pre-show, I thought like sub 4-4 four, four would be considered fast. I, I think relative to their peers, yeah. that's why I said that. Because, again, you have a lot of guys that run in the 4-5, four, 4-6 four, range. And, yeah, relative to me, you know, that's lightning. 4-5, four, 4-6, no. four, see ya. I ain't going to try. But relative to their peers in that sub 4-4, four, four, to me, I would consider fast. Now, if I'm talking offensive linemen, if you're under five, five uh, seconds, I and, and, this, and, and, even, and even that, look, going, I know we're going to get to my, look, I had to, Michael Jenkins, when we came out of 2004, we about the same height. He played receiver at Ohio State. We was both in New Orleans training, and they used to make me trail him. That's how I been. When he take off, you take off behind him. And I'm saying to myself, am I, am I supposed to be keeping up with him? I, I don't, people say, well, 4 5 is almost 4 4. It's not. 4 3 is almost 4 2. It's not. It's like that's, mm mm, mm mm. 4 4 can catch 4 5. Four three cannot catch four three can catch four four. You start saying can four five catch? Because I was like, dude, I I thought I was like, you know, you know, okay with the speed. What did, you, my, what did you run at your pro day? I ran like a I was like a four six four six two four six three. And mind you, mind you, like I said, people are saying, hey man, you got to put. I said, listen, man, listen. And this is the prime. This is when I'm twenty one years old. You know, still ain't got no money in my pocket. I ain't got no bills yet. Nothing. Hitting it out there with some box of briefs on and some cleats. Getting it. And in my mind, I think that's the problem. We have made people think that they're fast. Is it fast? Yes. No, yes, it is. I went to the combine with uh, Benjamin Watson, the Benjamin Watson. He is a freak. He was he's smart, he's the smartest guy at the combine. Good Lord. I mean, 49 out of 50. I ain't have time to do the 50. Thanks a lot, Ben. You could have put three or four hours, one of the licks together, and you ain't getting no score of 49. Then he ran a four. I think he ran like a four five oh. So you almost ran a four four. All I'm saying is, look, it's okay. This is this, this what they're going to start doing. For all you workout warriors, let's start working out for the combine. Let's see how fast you really are. I know you're in shape, but I'm telling you, that 40, that 40 is unforgiving. 
You know why? Because if I play receiver back in 2006, and old Calvin Johnson, who didn't have any cleats, some guy gave him his cleats. What size you went up? 14, 15. I got you. Put where my cleats. I don't <laughs> want to put them cleats back on. Well, he just ran a 435. Appreciate it, homie. Uh, no, you can keep, you can keep those because I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna go get on the plane. So, but I'm looking forward to see how these guys go out there and compete. That's take three. We do it every day. At this time, we've got more to come about that combine going on this week. And we return. It's three and out on the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Combine going on this week. As uh, again, some players are there to interview. Some players are there to work out. Some players are there to apparently play Nerf hoops uh, at the combine. As uh, Sam Howell was apparently, he was about two of six. Not good. So uh, if you're if you're wanting to know if you you want to draft Sam Howell for office basketball, that may not be your best pick. But he was at the uh, NFL Combine playing hoops today. Yeah, and according because one of the teams asked him to as part of the deal. That's weird. It, it is weird. Uh, going back to my uh, my Combine experience, it was the, it was the it was the best and worst three or four days of your life because you really don't know what to expect. And the, the coaches kind of use that against you. It's a it's like a three- or four-day interviewing process that as, as soon as you try to get a little comfortable with it, a lot of downtime for those people who don't know, between the meetings and the lifting and the running and the wonder licks and the standing on stage with boxer briefs on so they can get your height, your weight, your arm length, your hand size, it's weird because some of these teams – don't even ask you about football. They ask you, you know, if you were an animal, what what kind of animal would you be? If you were a boat, would you be a speedboat, you know, or a sailboat? <laughs> well, I, you know, if you, you know, you rather be you rather be a pro bowler on a team that's not making the playoffs, or you rather lose in the Super Bowl? And I'm saying, well, I'd rather be both. And they're like, well, that's not an option. I say, well, it's 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 one it's it's ridiculous because. Let's face it. I mean, some of these teams act like we don't watch football. Like, do we want to get drafted by any team? Yeah. But if you're the Browns and you ain't trying to tell us, you know, we got, you know, the culture here, you're like, oh, what, type, what kind of culture? If you're the Raiders, right, back before Patrick Mahomes, if you were the Chiefs, back before Michael Vick, if you were the Falcons, right, a lot of these teams ain't really got, they in the, now you in the NFL, but you a slot filler. Some of these teams ain't ever even played on Monday night let alone make the playoffs. But it is a weird experience because you realize, you have to get to a certain point to realize, dude, y'all y'all scouting me. I am the product. Like, I get you guys can coach, but if you're in a room, you say, well, how hard is it to not coach the best players on the planet? Like, that's what you're, that's what you're, that's what you're recruiting or, or scouting. But it, I, it, it was a great experience, though. I mean, I think the greatest thing about it is you finally get the, the same way these teams want to put names with faces. You get to do that, too, because there are players around the country that you've seen on on uh, on highlights, but you've never met them in person. And you want to meet these guys. I thought that was one of the most unique things is you meet, obviously, you meet in your position group, but because you kind of want to size guys up. Certain guys are bigger than you thought. Certain guys are shorter than you thought. Certain guys, but I think that's the main thing is to be there, to see all the ages, to see all the moving parts. Uh, it wasn't as big as it is now, but – yeah, man, the combine is great, man, but it's also extremely weird. I was going to ask you about that atmosphere because I've heard you talk about that before, that obviously when you're at the combine, everybody's competing for a select few spots. Everybody wants to be a first-round pick, a second-round pick, and there are only so many slots. Yeah. But I know you've said before when guys do well in drills, when guys you know have a great rep, 
there's there's a shared camaraderie because everybody's going through the same pressure or dealing with the same pressure, going through the same process. And when I when I've heard you talk about that in the past, it's just been really cool to hear. Yeah, you become you become fans of these guys. <laughs> I what's humbling for me with anything that I do is when I don't have to introduce myself to people. Like people come up to you, like you you know you they say what's up, troop man. They just get to talking to you. <laughs> I was on a, um I was on the bus uh, with Darnell Dock, Florida State. And he just starts talking to me. It's not like, hey, uh, he like, hey, true, man, look, look. He said, uh, he, we just get to talking about life. And you learn a lot about these guys because, certain, listen, certain guys, we all play football for different reasons. If it's 300 or something guys there, every last one of them play for a different reason. Obviously, you want to get paid. That's 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 the easiest reason. But certain guys, are they trying to be live up to a legacy that my dad played or my uncle played or, you know, it's all kind of things. But I think, the, I feel like I said, just being there, Getting off the plane, signing autographs. Let me tell y'all something. Now, woo, man, back when trading cards were a thing. Man, you get off Are the plane. still a thing? Well, well it was, I, I, I'm guessing it was more of a thing back then. We, we <laughs> actually grew up, you know, uh, collecting them. You get off a plane. You know, I'm finna, I'm finna show my age. The, the old Trapper Keeper. Let me tell y'all something. You get off the plane, they open this thing up. Look, and you sign, and you sign, and you sign, and they just turn the page. And he signed, he signed, and they turn the page. And then finally, after about 30 pages, they go, look, I got some more. Because they know they, they know your playing schedules when you're getting off and things of that nature. But uh, it, it's it's humbling, man. It really, really is. Because the players are coming up to you asking, hey, man, how did I run that route? What? All the tight ends was doing that to me. How did I run that route? And I said, ask Kellen. And they said in front of him, I'm not asking him why. Because he's weird. Look at him. Like, talking about him like he's standing right there in front of you, but – you know, guys like Ben Hardstock and Ben Watson and, and uh, Chris Wilson and Kellen Winslow, it's just so many guys, but then you realize how many guys didn't get invited. It's 130 Division One teams, which means they got a, they got a tight end or two on every team. They can, they can only invite, you know, 20-some of us. So I, it, it's, it's still very prestigious. I think it's a lot of – I think it's, you know, I think some of this stuff is beyond ridiculous, but nothing would be more ridiculous than – a bunch of twenty-some-year-olds and somebody say, "Hey man, strip down to your strip. Hey, uh, could you guys strip down to your uh, to your undies?" And they walk out. We look at each other like, "What is this money, Mike?" No, <laughs> strip down. And you strip down, and we all sitting on the side, and it's a it's a dark space, and you can hear all these voices. And somebody says, first up, you know, you know, so and so Anderson. They go on in order, and then when you get on stage, stretch stretch his arm a little more. Tell him to turn around again. Tell him to stretch his hands out. And you doing this, and, and and then you know it's like, and then they'll just go, all right, we we we've seen enough of them. Next, and you walk <laughs> off the stage, and the next guy walk up, but you can't leave. You have to watch everybody stand up there. But hey, man, it's I'm happy that I got a chance to go through the experience. I think it was something I'll always remember. But like I said, Lucas Oil Field is the greatest and worst because it's so exaggerated. Some of this stuff they do, you know, some of these, you know, you realize a lot of these guys are middlemen because you see them later on. You be like, man, you. Walk around like you was a shot caller. He's like, well, you ain't know. I had my shirt tucked in. I had my, you know, and somebody says, Larry, here, now. And he runs off. So, but, I, hey, man, but enjoy it. Uh, use your leverage. If you are uncomfortable, do not work out. Like, if, if you feel any uneasiness, do not work out because you're not going to do your best. And I think it's one of the best things I made. Do you feel that pressure? Because, I mean, we've, we've talked about this. This this is a, a huge job interview, and, whether whether a forty yard dash time or a bench press rep should be the difference in going eighth overall and eighteenth overall. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have things like that happen. I mean, when you're there, do you do, do you feel that pressure in that moment of 
everything I, you know, every rep I do, everything I say, everywhere I go, people are, I'm, I'm being evaluated and I could, who knows where I could go and, and how, what I might do might affect that. Yeah, you do. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm 21 years old. Of course, I mean, I'm questioning every decision I make. When my agent told me, look, man, you don't got to work out. I'm questioning that, but I paid them for a reason. When I'm sitting there doing interviews and the people are saying, look, I haven't even said I'm not working out yet. And, I, and you're going through an interview process, all these all these media people, the first thing they say is, Ben, we hear you're not working out, man. Like, who told you, you know, who told you that? Like, he said, I said, well, my agent told me I don't got to really do it. He said, I said, well, my agent worked for me. I don't work for him. And, you know, you look up there, you seeing these big name coaches. I mean, they want you to, you know, listen, I wasn't a Calvin Johnson, man. I wasn't a Julio Jones. It's not like they was tripping, but I think it was the best, one of the best decisions I made because it took I trusted it when I started realizing, man, once I go out there, they, if I'm dropping balls, I can't say, oh, I would have dropped them in, you know, when I'm doing my pro day. If I didn't run fast, I'm not, I'm not going to go from 4-6-4-7-8 because I'm going to a pro day. So I think it was one of the best decisions that I made because I had to realize, man, this is my livelihood. If I go out, the combine is a microcosm of the game. If I go into the game relaxed, I got a relaxed and confident, I got a better shot of playing well. If I go out there nervous and uneasy, I'm probably going to make a lot of mistakes. And I'm telling y'all, when you're looking up in those stands and you see all those coaches with those clocks and they doing this, when they look down and see somebody running, they go, man, I could have stayed home. I ain't want that to be me. Because when they, we was over there doing the vertical, and Brian Billick, who used to be the head coach of the Ravens, came over there. He said, let's, get, let's go tight ends. And they looking like 29. He walked off. I'm like, uh-oh. I don't know if that's good or bad. So, hey, man. All I'm saying is it's like it's like being in English class and you think you write a good writer and when you get that paper back it got a bunch of red ink on it. But I but I will say it was it, it was it was still a whole lot of fun. And that's going on this week. We'll see who some of the stars are in the coming days as we start to move through the position groups around the combine. We've got more to come here. It's three and out all across the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Welcome back to Three and Out. I am Ben Troop. That is BJ Bennett. And before I introduce <laughs> this this beast over here named Kevin Thomas. We, we got to we got to get something straight right here right now. There are certain things that we do not tolerate on this show. <laughs> we don't tolerate nonsense, right? When it comes to our sports, we love it. College football, college basketball, college baseball. You know what I'm saying? When you talk about NFL, but this is the thing about about baseball, MLB. There are four things that Kevin Thomas absolutely cannot stand. Number one. Triple fudge. Not dealing with it. Don't talk to me about it. I don't want to do it. Number two, boneless chicken wings. That's not a real thing. Chicken wings come with bones. So if somebody says, sir, traditional, you know, or non-traditional, go to the nearest uh, go to the nearest uh, department store, get you some baby powder, slap the hell out of them. Right? Number three, bowl games. Kevin does not That's like true. them. But number four, and I think this is the one, that would be Commissioner of Baseball, Rob Manfred. Yesterday... There was a Rob Manfred sighting, and we kept seeing him. He's smiling. You know why that was a dumb look on his face? <laughs> because baseball is not here right now. It's, we don't know when it's coming back. He doesn't care about it. I don't know who voted him in. I don't know what he got on MLB. He must got some. He must. He must know, know some G14 classified information because they, they need to get him out of there. But Mr. Thomas, there is your soapbox. Yep. Please, sir, speak your piece. I was going to say Rob did everything but make balloon animals up there yesterday uh, at the uh, at the. Pub. I mean, look. You're going to come out there and you're going to be smiling and laughing with the media about, oh, we're canceling games. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, no, get, get to walking. You're not serious. You don't respect the game. You need to be fired. Uh, that is, uh, I, look, that's a stance I will stand by until he actually quits or uh, is fired. He does not care about the game. He does not run the game well. 
he's a clown. I've said that from the beginning. But then you go up there and you're like, well, obviously the the, the fans were at the top of our pride. No, eh, lying. Eh, No, the fans are not at the top. Because if they were at the top, we wouldn't see your face, Rob. You would be off somewhere else playing golf while the rest of us are watching uh, I mean, how preseason baseball. Is that, though, to it, say, it, hey, it, the fans, no, I'm, I'm Well, with I mean, both sides do it. Both sides are going to be like, well, we love the fans. Well, somebody doesn't because we're not playing baseball, right? I mean, that's, that, that's all I'll say. Look, if you, if you truly cared about, hey, if we have no product, a lot of people are going to be mad. If you truly cared about that, then you wouldn't have had to stand up there like a, a, a jack wagon and say, we're canceling games. <laughs> Talk right? to him. Talk we're, to we, him. You wouldn't be standing up there going, well, we really tried, and we did this, and now we're canceling two series. No, well, obviously you didn't try hard enough, right? Uh, I think Ben said this yesterday off the air. Try is a fail word. Talk about right? it. Right? That, that, that is, hey, we tried. No, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You know how we know you didn't try? Because you locked everybody out in December and decided that February the 25th would be a great time to start negotiating. And then you go, well, we just ran out of time. Well, what is that? You're the one that didn't want to meet. You're the one, Rob, who is the face of the league, who didn't show up till Friday. Oh, we're serious about getting a deal done. Well, you literally acted like a teenager who had the final paper due on Saturday morning, and you showed up Friday afternoon and go, oh, God, I got an exam. Uh, Hello, where were you the whole time? I realize you have a telephone, and we're in the age of technology, but from the optics of it, you are the commissioner. You don't have a lot of things you are required to do. But when the game is on the verge of shutting down, you must be there. It is a requirement for you to show up. The end. You don't get to show up the last day and go, hey, fellas, how's it going? And then he gets caught uh, by uh, folks in the media out in one of the breezeways working on his golf swing. Way to go, Rob. We're, we're serious about this. We got, we're so serious. We're out here working on a nine iron shot, uh, you know, out here in the breezeway. No. You suck, and you should be fired. Talk about I it. I mean, it is. Get it t- say it, it? It is. You have done nothing to improve the game uh, at all. Most people think you don't even care about baseball. Yes, you represent the owners, but you do silly things, uh, like call the World Series trophy a piece of metal that, you know, everybody in the sport busts their hump their entire careers to try to win. It's just a piece of metal. Go pound sand, Rob, with that. Then you come to the last uh, bit of the negotiations yesterday, and all of a sudden it's like, well, we, we, we kind of went up a little bit on the CBA. You weren't even close to what the players were asking, and let's be real, you're still making a lot of money. Your move on the CBT relative to other league salary cap is minuscule to where they've increased along with revenues, and baseball's doing just fine. Get out of here with that. Then you come down to the last few minutes of the negotiating table, and you come out with this nonsense. Well, we started talking about oversized bases. Who gives a crap about oversized bases? We can worry about that later if that's a big deal. Who cares about that? Not one person. The only thing Rob has been concerned about since he's been commissioner is shortening the game, ruining the game, and making sure the owners have as much money as humanly possible. Again, BJ, we've negotiated. We've talked about this ad nauseum. The only people I ever hear say baseball is boring and too long are what? People who aren't fans of baseball. You say this all the time to me. Hey, you know who doesn't like soccer and says it's dumb and it's all this and that? People who don't watch soccer. And I get it. Not one baseball fan has ever gone to the field and said, man, we were here for three hours and five minutes. If only we were here for two hours and 57 minutes, I might have had a better time today. No, not one person cares about that. You care about that because you're trying to squeeze baseball into a three-hour window for what? For TV and cash. That's it. That's why we have all this nonsense about 
hey, let's put a runner on uh, you know, second base and extra innings and treat it like Little League. This is stupid. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I think Jason Hayward had a great point today, and that probably drives more to the point of what people are upset about than anything else with Major League Baseball. Yes, the players want to play. Are the players overzealous in some things? Probably so, as are both sides in the negotiation. But at the end of the day, and I, if you go read Jason Hayward's Instagram post, really put the, uh, a nail ahead. You don't leak out a story saying you're willing to miss a month of games if you aren't already chalking that up. He said the owners already don't want to play the first month. They look at that as debt. They know how many games we have to play where they turn profit. And that's all they want to play. Why? Because, well, it's a negotiation. They can afford to do it. So in retrospect, do you think that the momentum leading up to midnight a couple of nights ago was all PR? Yeah, of course. On on behalf of the Uh, owners? Yeah, when when things get leaked out there and uh, in, in retrospect, as, as, as Ben knows, things get leaked out there to win the battle of public opinion. Right yeah. now, a lot of folks are on the player side. I think the longer it goes on, people are on nobody's side. We just want baseball. But when you start leaking out things like, hey, we're still working at it. We're working hard. And then you read the subsequent back and forth are, all right, you're $70 million apart. You came up $3 million. Okay, we went back. We stayed at that number. Uh, we gave you more, but we're going to keep the CBT flat. The players are asking for a $15 million raise every year of the five years of CBA on the luxury tax, the CBT. You came up and left it flat, and then the last two years came up uh, a couple million. That's not, you know that's not going to get it done, and you're coming out there and going, hey, we got a lot of momentum. We got knowing full and well that whatever you're going to put out there is not going to be signed. So then you can go out in front of the cameras, tra- chat out there like a clown, like Rob Manfred, go, we offered all this stuff and they still said no. Well, you knew they were going to say no because you knew what they were asking and you didn't even come close to budging. Now the players budged a little bit and you can maybe throw some blame their way and say they didn't budge enough to come more towards the middle, but Major League Baseball really didn't either uh, at the end of the day. So I think at the end of the day, Major League Baseball knew there was never going to be a deal. And unfortunately, there probably are. Perfectly fine not playing a month of games knowing that they can still make a profit. Uh, and again, I, I just I, – a lot of disdain but out there But if that's for- your mindset and, and great great perspective and breakdown, if, if that's your mindset, if your mindset is, hey, we can wait until this minute, uh, miss games, hurt the game, hurt the players, hurt everybody involved with the game, and still make a profit – to what you and Bud said earlier in the show, I mean, well, I, you shouldn't own a baseball team. Mm-hmm. Sure, you shouldn't own a major mm-hmm. league baseball team. Mm-hmm. That look, who's going to make them sell it? Think, 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 think about what you just said. Well, no, what do you mean who can make them sell it? We just saw a league make a franchise owner sell a basketball team. Well, well you, you can make people well, sell. Well, I, I will say this, right? When you get to when you get to talking about something people are passionate about, right? The the these owners, they think they are the end all be all because no no, they are the investors. They invest in a team, they got a team. Well, look at all the moving parts they got to go with logistics and compliance and all the, and, and the coaches and the players and the managers, so on and so forth. What does it take to fill a what does it take to fill a stadium? Concessions and you talk about people, uh, you, you talk about the people that's that's uh, with the staff, and you talk about the, the people that got to maintain the field and all this other type of stuff. All these things are affected because you got some owners that say, look, man, we think that uh what we're giving is fair. No, fair is a place where you judge pigs. That is not what you just did. Don't get, you are mad at the fact that your product understands their worth. That's what this is about. I don't think they're worth what they're asking for. They are teams that suck, but yet they still make on money. Pur- on purpose. On purpose. On purpose. Hey, like, hey, think about that. I, I spent my whole life, I made it out of the minors, made it to the, made it to the majors, just to say, hey, man, we, 
you know, y'all go out and have fun. But not only do they our... suck, they 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 are designed to, yes. to try to maximize as much profit while also well, sucking I mean, at and, the same time. And this time. is what a lot of people fail to understand: the CBT. When you pay that, that's to go into a it's a competitive balance, competitive balance tax. Which means what? The New York Yankees go over, the Red Sox go over, they have to pay a luxury tax. Where does that go? It's divided up amongst the teams. So the teams, hypothetically, who are crying poor, get that money to invest in their teams to do better on the field so they can, quote, have competitive balance. Are they doing that? Obviously, uh-oh, uh-oh. they aren't. But take, but Obviously, they are not. For those people that say, well, being that kind of stuff doesn't matter. You don't, you don't think that kind of stuff matters? Yeah. Who wins the national championship in college? What do they have in common? Spend a bunch of money, don't they? But it's not even that. But but it's not even that. There is, uh, and people have argued this. There is no competitive balance in college football because those with the most are winning, right? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. that's the case. You don't have anything like that to balance out college football. The only thing anybody ever says is go out and recruit better. Well, I'm sorry if your recruiting budget is three million and mine's three hundred thousand. I can be the best recruiter out there. I'm going to lose every day of the week uh, to you. So. uh, but Ben, your point is well taken. I mean, your point is well taken. The Yankees, no matter, you can raise the the the, the CBT as much as you want. The Yankees are going to spend money. Okay. The Red Sox are going to spend money. The Dodgers are going to spend money. It don't matter how high that thing goes. The Marlins ain't ever going to spend money. They're just not. I mean, they're not. They're going to try to win as best they can with their young players. And when it comes time to pay them, I mean, let, let, let's think about this. The Miami Marlins, if they would have just invested a little bit of money, you traded away. Giancarlo Stanton, big-time MVP-type player. You traded away Christian Yelich, who did win an MVP. You traded away Marcelo Zuna. You had all three of those cats in the outfield at the same time, and when it came time to pay even one of them, you paid none of them. You had JT Real Muto, all-star level catcher. Let him go. Didn't choose to pay him. You have players you're choosing to stink on purpose and pocketing all that money. Again, no, no pro sports league is out there crying poor at this point. You have TV contracts that are absolutely ridiculous. You have gate receipts. Ticket prices are going up. People hitting the turnstiles, streaming, all kinds of stuff that is going on out there for these leagues to make money. So the fact that you could say we're not making money, the league is a bad investment. Okay, Rob. Are you you're telling me a 401k is a better investment than a Major League Baseball team? We're all poor, and we have no cash. Then why, before you started the lockout, did three separate players get $30-plus million deals? Why did Max Scherzer uh, get over $40 million? Why in the last couple of years have you seen teams go out when they didn't have to and give deals to Juan Soto, uh, or attempt to give deals to Ronald Acuna Jr.? Give deals to Fernando Tatis long-term when they didn't have to. Is it because they're broke? Right? If I'm running a business and I'm losing money, am I giving out $40 million deals? No. If the business is suffering, teams don't have that. Like, uh, you're, you're flat lying to everybody at every turn, and nobody is buying it at this point. Uh, so, and again, I think when you see the financials of the Braves, and you see a home game is worth, what, $6, 7000000 million in revenue, about a million dollars in profit for a home game. This is a Braves team that, are they the highest spending team? No, they're kind of, what, top 10, 11? So they're kind of in the top middle? I mean, nobody looks at the Braves and say they are exorbitant spenders. BJ's been on a rant for months talking about the Braves aren't going to re-sign Freddie Freeman because they never give anybody huge money like that. 
but they spend money and they and they and they win. They don't spend it at the highest level. So th- this is not a we have no money situation. It mm-hmm. is a cheap situation, and yeah, we're trying very, not to I'm pay. Talking about, I'm talking about extreme, extremely yeah. cheap. Yeah, we are trying to shove as much cash in our pro- in our pockets and not pay the players and have a a league that's so out of whack that we know four and five franchises are going to lose 90, 100 games only because they won't pay anybody and they refuse to. And it's it's a travesty that is not going to get fixed anytime soon. We'll come back. It's three and out. Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Good to have you back here. Three and out. Kevin BJ and Ben. A lot to get to in the final hour of the show. Sean Elliott, Georgia State head coach, going to join us. Spring practice underway there for the Panthers, who finished seven and one. Uh, to end last season, and of course, stacked eastern side of the Sun Belt uh, coming up here in 2022. Also, Logan Booker, 960 The Ref in Athens, will join us. 14 University of Georgia players at the Combine here this week as well. And you're getting players sounding off on the lockout. Mike Trout finally weighing in uh, out there. Jason Hayward and others sounding off on where we sit with the CBT and uh, the collective bargaining agreement there for Major League Baseball. Final hour coming up around the corner. We're talking uh, football next with Sean Elliott, head football coach at Georgia State. Three and out all across the Southern Pigskin. Welcome back. Final hour of three and out. Kevin BJ and Ben, a lot to get to this hour. Logan Booker, 960, the ref, will join us uh, here on the show. We'll talk about... Uh, the Combine, a lot of players uh, from Georgia there at the Combine and look to see what they are uh, looking to do in the coming days there in Indianapolis. Also the latest with the lockout and Major League Baseball still to come. But spring football is underway and is underway there in Atlanta at Georgia State. And their head football coach, Sean Elliott, joins us here on 3 and Out. Coach, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great, man. It's uh, 77 degrees, March the 2nd, and we're in spring practice. Uh, we practice in the morning, but everything's going really, really well right now. And I'm sure uh, it feels good to get back out there. How excited were you to to kind of start spring practice after the way you guys finished last year, seven and one uh, down the stretch, really playing well? Well, you know what? I mean, uh, it feels like we stopped playing yesterday. Our last game was on Christmas Day, and uh, you know we started February 22nd in our spring practice. So it does. Uh, it's not like usual because uh, normally wait we wait a little bit later. And uh, so it feels almost like we just, you know, took a week off and got back out on the field, like an open date. <laughs> Coach, talk about the momentum around your program. Uh, like, like Kevin mentioned, the way you finished the season, the talent coming back. I know a lot of excitement around uh, the schedule, which was just released, uh, spring practice, just a lot, of, a lot of good things going on with your program. And I, I'd imagine a lot of confidence amongst the guys. Well, yes. You know, anytime you, you – you, we've got good players, we've got good people, and uh, – We've got a lot of those good players and people coming back to our football team. That's, you know, that's comforting for a football coach. Uh, we still have to develop a few positions. We have to uh, develop some younger players. So, you know, our team's a long way from being polished or finished, but uh, we do have a little bit of momentum. But really, to tell you the truth, that all it is is just games in the past. We really can't look to last year and, and say, hey, that's going to springboard us into something else. Uh, we've got to go and develop our football team uh, to be very, very successful this season, uh, like we're starting from scratch. 
And coach, I mean, when you think about the the reputation of, of the Sun Belt at large, I mean, you guys have got you know one of the best, if not the best, uh, you know, G five program out there. And I know you're not looking that far down the line, but I mean, you guys open up, you know, at South Carolina, you know, at North Carolina, you guys are obviously going to get ready to go at this thing. But how much better does that make the spring? Understanding what's coming uh, come fall. Well, if you if you look at our schedule, yes, we open up with the University of South Carolina, then. Uh, then the University of North Carolina comes into Atlanta and plays at our place in the second game. You know, our, our starts, uh, it's a tough start. We, we've got to be in, I would say, mid to late season form to be able to go out and really compete at a high level against the Gamecocks and the Tar Heels. And, you know, it, it, so it's, it's a great opportunity for us. You know, anytime you play tough opponents, and especially two teams from the ACC and the SEC, uh, you want to go out and give it your very, very best, just like we always do in our non-conference schedule. Uh, our our players understand what's at stake. Uh, they understand what we uh, have to do to, to to put a great product on the field. So we're working towards that. And hopefully by the time September 3rd rolls around, we're going to be in that mid-season to late-season form and give those uh, those contests a real good for the money, run for the money. Sean Elliott joining us here, and Coach, to uh, to that end, just speak about, obviously you can work on uh, game plans week to week once the season uh, gets here, but uh, kind of talk about preparing for that schedule where you mentioned your non-conference, but then in the conference, you guys are welcoming in some uh, some new members, four new ones, and uh, you guys are actually playing all four of them. So uh, not a lot of familiarity, I would imagine, with a lot of teams on your schedule coming up here in, uh, in 2022. How in the world we ended up with all four new faces in the schedule, I have no idea. But we did. Uh, you know, we don't put much into it. We play those those teams later on in the season. So, you know, it's not like I'm going to go back and start watching film on uh, James Madison or Old Dominion right now. You know, we've got plenty of time to do that. Our focus is, is really, really simple. We, we focus on our team. And we're going to do that right up until the point where we have to start preparing for the the South Carolinas, the North Carolinas, the Armies, the Charlottes, and then the Sun Belt schedule. Uh, we're going to make sure we take care of our individuals, our players, our coaches, and make sure our football program is in the best shape it can be when it's time to start preparing. And that'll be sometime midsummer. Uh, we don't. We try not to get ahead of ourselves. Uh, we try to enjoy the springtime. We, it's. It tell you the truth. It's it's really a relaxation period for us, uh, and that's something that we've always thought it um, as being. And we're going to continue to do that. But when it's time to put that pedal to the metal, we're going to get ready for those opponents. Coach, here in the spring, uh, what do you feel like are uh, the strengths of your team right now? I know a group still, uh, you know, in, in 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 progress in terms of getting to this fall. But where do you feel like your strengths are right now? Well, you know, if you look at us both offensively, defensively, and kicking, uh, I think we return eight on offense, eight on defense. Uh, We've got a strong offensive line. We've got uh, a solid tight end position. Our tailbacks are probably two of the best tailbacks in the league. And then we have two other tailbacks that may be just as good as those two starters. So we're very strong there. Our wide receiver position it seems to be in a very stable position as well. Defensively, our front seven is, is fast and furious and, and relentless. Uh, we, we've got strengths. Uh, but like I said, you know, anytime you have success, you've got to deal with a little bit of complacency uh, trying to creep into those guys. We've got to make sure that our seniors, our super seniors, have laser focus. We keep their attention, keep that tunnel vision, and keep moving in the right direction. And if we can do that with our strength positions, then we should be okay. But we can't let them falter, 
and and start looking ahead and start thinking there's something that we're not at this point in time. Coach, how far are you uh, looking forward to making sure those young guys getting to, didn't get a lot of playing time last season? Is always the springtime is always you know to get the show and prove how far I've come in a year. It's, it's got to make the uh, make the whole entire competition out there in the spring much better. It really does. You know, if you look at our our positional battles, um, you know we we have a veteran offensive line, and this is an example for you. Uh, Five of those guys right now, all five of them, uh, aren't getting many reps. They've been here fifth and uh, some of them six years, and it's giving all of our young guys. We've got great depth at that position. And, and so our starting offensive line right now is guys that have actually probably never taken the field in a starting role at all. Or when I say a starting role, haven't played a whole lot of meaningful competitive snaps. So this spring is very vital. I mean, we went out today and – Man, they probably got in 120 reps. I'm talking about guys that need those reps to develop that mentality, understand the discipline and, and the effort it takes to go win. Sean Elliott joining us here, Georgia State head coach. And uh, you talk about the successes you've had as a program. How have you seen that uh, impacted on the recruiting trail for you? Have you, have you seen uh, some things open up for you on the recruiting trail after you beat a Tennessee, after you get to eight wins and finish strong last season? Well, anytime you win, it, it certainly opens the doors. And, uh, you know, more importantly than the winning, some people do it differently than we do it. But we, we base ourselves on a lot of hard work, a lot of great effort, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of fun. And uh, that in itself, if they've ever come and witnessed our practice or witnessed us play, they see exactly what we do and what we're like. And that transforms into winning. And when they see that combination of, hey, they can have fun, they can work hard, and they can win, then a lot of people want to join you. And that's what we're seeing happen here at Georgia State University. Coach, a lot of talk about the conference, but what about this division? I mean, you, you think about the rivalry with Georgia Southern, obviously, Appalachian State, Coastal Carolina, what they've done. What's it like competing in this division each season? Oh, gosh, like fighting Mike Tyson every week. I mean, We've got some really good programs, the Coastal Carolinas, the Appalachian States, the Georgia Southerns. You know, everyone in the East, uh, I mean, has a really, really strong football program. You look at James Madison that's coming in, and and they just played for the national title, you know, a few years in a row there. Uh, It's amazing to think just how good our conference was and now has become. And when I say a great conference, it's very competitive. We've got unbelievable athletes, and we've got really unbelievable coaches in this league. Coach, I know you talked about your super seniors. I know you talked about having depth at the offensive line and different positions. What are you as a coach working on? I know each year, I mean, I know you love football. That's never to be questioned. But what are you working on individually to make sure, look, man, I don't want to be uh, the same coach 2022 I was 2021. Well, you know, that's uh, that's something I do want to be. Uh, you know, I take, I take coaching very, very serious. I've been doing – uh, I've, I've been coaching the exact same way since I stepped on the field in 1997. I don't want to change because, you know, when you get up in, in the upper 40s, I'm 48 years old now, I still try to trade, uh, transition that energy to our players, and I've got to always continually bring that and set the example for our football team that we go out and when we practice we give great effort, great enthusiasm, and we're relentless, relentless in everything we do. That's what i got to keep holding on to. I, I'm chasing that youth. So that's what I'm doing right now, Coach. Finally, what are what are the priorities of uh, you and your staff this spring? I know I know different coaches, coaching staffs want to accomplish different things in uh, spring ball. What are your goals here during camp? Well, my goals in spring practice are very very simple. I want to be great, competitive spirits. 
I want to make sure we limit our injuries and we have no unforeseen injuries that we have to deal with coming this summer. Uh, so everyone will be ready this fall. Uh, we just want to be crisp and sharp. You know, we want to make sure we don't waste opportunities. They only give us so many opportunities in the spring. Let's make sure when we go out there, we have our mindset ready to get work in. And that's exactly what we're trying to do right now. Sean Elliott, Georgia State head coach, our guest here on 3 and Out. Coach, we appreciate the time. Best of luck to you moving forward in the spring, and thanks so much. Hey, always great to talk about Georgia State football. <laughs> appreciate you guys. Hey, appreciate it. Coach Sean Elliott joining us here on 3 and Out. And as he mentioned, that schedule opening up at South Carolina. North Carolina comes to Atlanta. Uh, Charlotte, Coastal Guard. I mean, you really look at the schedule uh, for for them in the Sun Belt. It's SEC, ACC, Charlotte's been an up-and-coming program Coastal Carolina has been in the top 25. At Army, who's been a consistent top 25 uh, bowl team there with Jeff Monken. Georgia Southern, who's become a rivalry game at State. Then you get, as he said, all four of the newcomers, Old Dominion, Southern Miss, James Madison, and Marshall, with Louisiana Monroe uh, snuck in there. Uh, BJ, man, I look at that, and I see maybe two games where you feel like, man, we should be heavily favored. Every other game, we're going to have to really work and scrap to go back and, and get wins. And if they come out of there with – with, you know, eight, nine wins like they did last year, he's done a heck of an effort with a just really, really tough schedule. I mean, the Sun Belt. The Sun Belt is very difficult, and Coach talked about it. Then you add in, again, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Army, and and Charlotte. I think Charlotte beat Duke last yeah. year. Uh, and, and you think about what Army's done on the national stage to go along with the Carolinas. It's a very challenging schedule, but like we said with Georgia Southern, challenges but also opportunities. Mm-hmm. Think about Georgia State beating Tennessee in Knoxville. Georgia State leading Auburn for the vast majority which, of that which, game. Uh, which wasn't yeah. home cooking. They might have won that one. Yeah, this is a program that has shown they will play with anybody. They will go toe-to-toe with anybody. And you mentioned uh, not only are they playing all four of the new additions, you have at Southern Miss, at James Madison, at Marshall in three of your last four. So that's a big-time challenge there. But the way Georgia State finished the year last year, a lot of talent back. They're going to be very good. They're going to be very good this fall. Listen, when you talk about at South Carolina, we talk about North Carolina coming to Atlanta. We're going to learn a lot about this team really, really early. But South Carolina, North Carolina, they could, they could, they could also understand why people do not, uh, you know, schedule the Sun Belt. I mean, I know, I know, we go back what a couple of years ago when the big, what was it, the Sun Belt, uh, Big Twelve Challenge? How did that go? <laughs> I mean, Iowa State. Well, just a couple of years ago, they beat Tennessee. Absolutely. So, so I do think that while we talk, while we just talking it up that South Carolina, because obviously because they got Spencer Rattler, who's going to replace Sam Howell at USC, BJ. We look up, and next thing you know, hey, man, we 2-0. So we beat what? A, 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 a good team in the, uh, in the ACC and the ACC? Who knows? But, I mean, look ahead to, to, to this fall, like Coach yeah. mentioned. Georgia Southern, Appalachian State, Coastal Carolina. Georgia, this is going to be a lot of fun. The Sun Belt, especially in the East, is going to yeah. just be a heck of a ride. Tough road there in the East, as uh, has been mentioned plenty of times. We'll come back. Logan Booker, 960, the ref. In Athens, going to join us combine this week in Georgia. Well represented, more players at the combine from the University of Georgia than any other school in the country. Fourteen of them working out there uh, in Indianapolis. He'll join us next here on Three and Out. On the- Good to have you here on this Wednesday combine going on in Indianapolis, Georgia. Very well represented there in Indianapolis. Fourteen players there at the combine for Georgia. And joining us here from nine sixty, the ref. Logan Booker joining us here on 3 and Out. Logan, obviously Georgia, very well represented. Who do you think has the most to gain with a good performance this week? What's going on, guys? Uh, Yeah, 14 players down at the Combine, which is just crazy to wrap your head around a program record and uh, most from any school out there. And it's kind of nice to see those graphics out there without people uh, asking, what if they won? And in fact, these are a bunch of national champions. 
uh, headed up there. But you know what I'm really looking forward to this weekend is seeing how George Pickens can can get out there and physically show what he's done with that rehab knee. Toward about a year ago now, it was right at the beginning of of a spring practice, and we know that he didn't get his first snaps, first reception, or game time until the Georgia-Georgia Tech game after Thanksgiving, and he was such a limited quantity of on the field for all of uh, you know the postseason, the SEC championship, the Orange Bowl, and the national championship. But he had his interviews today, and he really sounds like he's ready to show all the scouts and at the Combine what Georgia was missing in 2021. And I think if he goes out there and is healthy, I, I'm, I'm thinking he might be able to slide up into maybe an early-round pick. I don't know if a first-round pick is worth it, but – I would love to see George slide somewhere maybe in second round or so if he can show all those attributes that we know he has, just hasn't been healthy for the past year. And, Logan, uh, the mock drafts, of course, are uh, all out there, and you've seen a number of Georgia Bulldogs uh, featured as potential first-round picks. End of the day, I mean, how many of these guys could be first-round picks? I've seen some speculation that Georgia, at least, you know, if, if, if one or two guys maybe go a little higher than anticipated, could tie a record maybe with, with, with first-round picks from one team. Yeah, so I think that the locks for a first-round pick are going to be Trayvon Walker, who may even be a top-15 pick. I mean, I, I could see him going pretty darn high. He just he just turned it on at the right time at the end of the season and, and was playing his best football all the way up into the national championship game. I think that left some really good impressions. Uh, he's got all the physical Again, attributes they're looking for at the Combine. So he's a lock. I think N'Kobe Dean is also a lock for a first-round pick, maybe somewhere uh, mid, just kind of 15 to 23 range, something like that. Uh, the big question, excuse me, the question marks now, and you're seeing these, like you mentioned in those mock drafts, very likely Devontae Wyatt. I'm seeing him pop up more and more uh, after his Reese's Senior Bowl showing down in Mobile this, or last month. And I think he turned a lot of heads, and if he can do what the combine is looking for, I think he could really slide up some draft boards. What's a little bit surprising to me lately, and, and we'll see how it all pans out when the draft happens, but Jordan Davis is actually seeming to be sliding down a little bit. I'm not sure if that's more of the he doesn't fit every NFL scheme. Uh, a team that runs a 3-4 would certainly benefit a lot from having a giant nose guard uh, like him plugged up in the middle, but Maybe it's just not a right fit for an early-round draft pick and some of those teams kind of shuffle down. But, again, this is why they're at the Combine, to go there and, and do what they do. And if anybody can work out and impress people from a physical standpoint, I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever stood next to Jordan Davis, but that dude is an absolute uh, monster of a man. So I'm, I'm really hoping he turns some heads this week, too, and maybe put some of those question marks behind him. Uh, whatever those are, I don't even know what the question marks are, but I would love to see him slide in the first round as well. So, I think those four guys have a really, really good chance, uh, three at the minimum. Uh, but like you just said, that, that would set a Georgia record if four guys go in the first. And then I think you got several uh, when you start sliding into the second and third round. We can talk about a whole bunch of names there. So it, it's going to be a really good advertisement for Georgia this week in Indianapolis. Then again, uh, when the draft takes place at the end of next month. So this is going to be a good, good couple months for Kirby Smart and the PR machine, I believe. The cornerback position is obviously going to be loaded in this year's combine. Darion Kendrick comes over from Clemson. I think he played his best football down the stretch, was able to rebound uh, from that uh, SEC championship game, zero catches for zero yards in the national championship against Alabama. How, how, how do you see him doing to the combine, and how much can he potentially boost his stock? Yeah, I think he's, he was, like, like you just said, he was lights out, locked down the corner as, as when it mattered the most. He had a really good showing, a pair of interceptions in the Orange Bowl, 
uh, that that is a, a lasting impression that I think is certainly going to sit well with a lot of guys. And uh, looking very forward to seeing what he can do. We know he physically has it. Um, and I, I really do think, I keep going back to that last impression, was just amazing. I can see him kind of uh, sticking on the Alabama receiver in that final drive right before Keely Ringo eventually intercepted the ball. But, no, that was such a huge, massive pickup for Georgia, uh, just in hindsight, taking a chance. And I know that he left Clemson not in the best terms, but when the legal process and everything ran its course, he was, he was good to go, and Kirby took a flyer on him, and, I think that's a huge reason Georgia won the national championship. But he's one of those guys I just mentioned that I would look for maybe second, maybe third round. I'm not sure what specific teams will be uh, needing that cornerback. But when you start looking at the cornerback uh, chart there, I mean, he, he has to be a top five, top six guy in this draft. And that is a huge position at the next level. So I'm glad you asked about him. I'm a huge Darian Kendrick fan, and he'll always mean a, a whole lot to Georgia Nation for what he did. I think he's going to be a, a very good player on Sundays pretty soon. Logan Booker, 960, the ref joining us. Not that Georgia needs any help in the, in this department, but how big of a statement is it if you can't post that four guys in the first round on a draft day and it's seemingly in every round, there's like, hey, and from the University of Georgia, I mean, we've seen it with Alabama, uh, obviously recently, Miami and years of past where it's like, good grief, half the first round seems like they're coming out of one school. How big is that yep. for Kirby Smart? Not only winning the national championship, but now you say, hey, and on top of that, we're just shoving guys into the, na- the, the National Football League. Yeah, I think riding that momentum is is huge. We talk about that a lot on our show is that, okay, Georgia finally got over the hump. You've got the trophy. The kids that are being recruited are now coming and taking photos with that trophy in the locker room. That's great. That's wonderful. But what they really, really want to see, and I I would actually, in, in today's world, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing at all. I think this is just where we are with college football and, and players building their own personal brand. I would almost say the kids are more interested in watching draft day and seeing who's being pulled out of where than winning a national championship itself. Now, that they come together, don't get me wrong. When you get on a team and you play well and you win a championship, that's what turns the heads. That's what, that's what really gets you in those good standings and uh, proves that you can be a team player and you're obviously good enough to, to be on those championship teams. But I really do think if those four guys can go off the board and then second and third round are also fruitful and – and, gosh, there could be upwards of 14 players drafted from the University of Georgia before it's all said and done. I believe that that is one of the huge reasons, uh, even more so than the national championships, like I said, that Alabama has been able to continuously turn the cog. And uh, this is another step that if Georgia can show it can do what it does. And, and we have to start thinking outside of just recruiting. It, it's not just impressing the high school kids that are looking to be freshmen somewhere. You're, starting to need, you're needing to impress the transfer portal as well. A lot of kids are going to be taking uh, chances and leaving their current schools and saying, I want to go to a, a program uh, with some coaches that I know can get me to the next level. I got a good start at X school, but now I'm ready to go to the next school. And I think Georgia needs to figure out a, a way to be a player in that. You've seen Alabama sign several uh, transfer portal kids already. Georgia's been a little bit quiet uh, on that front, but I think that'll kind of pick up big time once spring is over. But uh, yeah, long way to answer your question, but I think draft night itself is going to be equally as, as important as what Georgia did on January 10th. Logan, looking ahead to spring ball, uh, the defending national champs, listen, that, that's enough of a storyline right there, but, but, but what are the storylines on the field in uh, spring ball for the dogs? Yeah, look, looking forward to seeing who can step up and replace some of these defensive linemen. The, the Jordan Davises, Devontae Wyatt that we just talked about, uh, some, some, a lot of the edge rushers that are gone, some of those middle linebackers, that will be the most talked about thing 
I think not only from us as, you know, the, the voice of the dogs in Athens, Georgia, but all these outlets everywhere around the Southeast when we get to the off season, they're going to want to know what, what is in the coffers now and on the, de- the defense. All those guys that left last year as champions and uh, went on to get drafted. So we're going to be watching a whole lot of uh, guys. There. I, don't, I don't even have a depth chart in front of me. I'm sorry, but there's so many guys that we're going to have to, like, learn uh, okay, this guy was a four-star recruit. That guy was a five-star recruit. Now it's your time to step up, and who's going to be the one that turns those heads uh, to fill in a lot of positions? And I'm looking at a middle linebacker, for instance. N'Kobe Dean was such a massive, massive uh, part of just the continuity on the field when those guys were out there. Who, who can step up and take that role? Uh, who are your edge rushers going to be? I love what's coming back for Georgia. Uh, I think Nolan Smith uh, deciding to come back for another year. Uh, is absolutely huge. Christopher Smith in the secondary doing the same thing uh, as he's on his way back. And I think Robert Beal is another name coming back that needs to be celebrated by Georgia fans that he was playing some of his best football at the end of last season, decided that, hey, one more year, see what I have and and go from there. As far as the offensive side goes, let's be dead honest real quick. I think there's a quarterback battle in Athens. I'm not sold that Kirby Smart is just going to hand over the defending national champion, Stetson Bennett, the keys to the ship, because he's shown over and over and over for years that he is willing to put somebody in over Stetson. Now, this past season got a little bit sideways with JT's injuries, and the hot hand was the combination where he just stayed with Stetson and uh, went through the the process. But with Brock Vandegrift about to make his uh, sophomore season, uh, you got true freshman Gunnar Stockton coming in, who's a massive recruit out of Raven County. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this quarterback position. I, I, I would put my chips on the table to say it's going to be Stetson Bennett, uh, but I'm not at all going to lock that in as a 100% thing. So it's, uh, it's one of those just common or con- constant uh, fluid situations there. But there's a lot to watch this spring, so I can't wait for March 15th to get it rolling again. Eric Gilbert back on campus finally. I mean, you happy for him being able to get whatever he was dealing with with his family and mentally back out the way to get to finally get on campus with Georgia. How scary could that offense be? I know you talk about the quarterback, uh, the quarterback uh, competition, but you talk about Brock Bowles, you talk about Darnell Washington. Eric Gilbert is obviously going to be a guy who's I think he's still going uh, listed, uh, you know, uh, going to be playing the tight end, maybe the tight end wide receiver position. How scary could those three guys be if you do find a package to get them on the field at the same time? Yeah, that would be absolutely huge, and, and nobody has said anything official out this way, but, but we're all kind of gathering the, the, the writings on the wall. You saw, as you mentioned, Eric Gilbert uh, at the celebration a week after the championship, and something that Kirby Smart did just a, a week or so ago, he put out a tweet from his own account that said, happy birthday to uh, Eric Gilbert, and uh, all the writings on the wall are that he is back with the team. He, he hopefully will see – Pretty soon we'll be competing or, or participating in spring practice. But, uh, yeah, what you're saying, if, if we can get him back on the field, that absolutely adds another level. If, and it's assuming that he got all of his uh, uh, situations, his personal issues that he was battling, if those are all figured out and he's back to being the athlete we know he can be out of Marietta, then, uh, yeah, I think that is 100%. That, that, to me, fills the void of George Pickens, which was a void in, a, in and of itself this whole past season. But I think the combinations you can throw out there – uh, let's say Arian Smith is healthy again on the edge, too, as well, and some of those wide receivers, and A.D. Mitchell takes the next step. If you put a Brock Bowers and a Darnell Washington and an Arian Gilbert out there as well, running from short to medium routes, uh, I don't care if it's Brock Vandegrift, if it's Stetson Bennett, or if it's Gunnar Stockton. They're going to have open receivers, I feel like. So I think this could be, uh, throw the combination in with Todd Munkin, this could be one of those 
stepping stone years for the Georgia offense that we've been waiting for for a little while. But uh, we're all rooting for him, uh, Gilbert, that is, and, and we certainly hope that he's got everything figured out, and, and he would be one heck of a good story uh, for a lot of people in this state if he can get on the field this fall. Logan Booker, 960 The Ref, our guest here on 3 and Out. Georgia starting spring practice very soon. Uh, Logan, we appreciate the time. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Talk to you guys soon. Appreciate it. Logan Booker, 960 The Ref, joining us here on 3 and Out, BJ and Ben. And, again, a lot of things. Even when you come off a national championship, it's not as simple as, hey, we're, we're good. There's going to be a lot of battles and a lot of things still to be worked out in terms of playing time um, in between the hedges there for Georgia. Yeah, and to me, I'd have to see a lot. I mean, to to – to go in another direction besides Stetson Bennett, what Stetson did last season, uh, his experience, his success, his proficiency. But I guess when you're at a big-time program, I mean, you've talked about this. When you're at Florida, when you're at Georgia, uh, there's always the competition there. Yeah, it's all about winning the perception battle. I do agree that Stetson Bennett is going to – he's going to – he understands going into it what it takes to go out there and be the guy, but he understands too that when it comes to these recruiting things, you talk you talk about being able to have the number one recruiting class. Well, having the number one recruiting class has a lot to do with getting the, getting the quarterback that you coveted, and you got two young guys that's definitely going to be trying to uh, make sure they get on the field. But Stetson's been through it. This is his third year not doing it, and he's added a national championship to that. I just think that he understands now what it takes to go out there and get it done. Uh, you know, uh, being talented is one thing, but uh, having having game experience. It's a whole other thing. I mean, he's been through the gauntlet. He's played Alabama twice, finally got over that hump. I think he's going to be hard to beat. We've got more to come here, 3 and Out, all across the Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Have you here, 3 and Out, on this Wednesday. Draft combine going on. NBA going on. Baseball not going on. Latest with the lockout. Obviously, games have been canceled. There's some hope uh, that they continue negotiations uh, tomorrow, but... Uh, as we talked earlier in the show, BJ and Ben, players now have a mechanism called social media that wasn't around the last time they had a, a strike situation, a big collective bargaining, and players are sounding off. Haven't seen any owners tweeting. Haven't seen any owners putting out statements. Seen a lot of players putting out statements. Mike Trout, maybe uh, one of the more popular baseball guys. I know you could argue, hey, maybe it's Bryce Harper, Shohei Otani's game, Fernando Tatis. But Mike Trout certainly... Most people have heard that name said, quote, I want to play, I love our game, but I know we need to get this CBA right. Instead of bargaining in good faith, MLB locked us out. Instead of negotiating a fair deal, Rob canceled games. Players stand together for our game, for our fans, and for every player who comes after us. We owe it to the next generation. That's good words from Mike Trout. You hope they kind of stick to it. And again, I think the, the, the concern for a lot of people is, you work so hard to get a deal for the players that nothing gets addressed about the health of the game moving forward in competitive uh, situations that uh, that arise where you just have teams that aren't even trying to win or trying to spend money uh, for that matter. But it seems like the players, and Ben said, hey, you can't just get to this point and say, okay, we give in. seems like the players are kind of dug in, and I think both sides know that the owners, it got leaked out and several players referenced the owners are probably – willing to miss a whole month and they've they've said as much or they got leaked out as much that they were willing to do that and Jason Hayward putting out a Instagram post today saying look the owners know exactly how many games they need to have in order to make money so they're willing to take it all the way up to that line and then magically there'll be some kind of deal where that's the that's the number of games they wanted to make anyway that's the number of games they want to play anyway because they just care about profits and they look at April as debt so who they don't care if we play in April or not. I think that's a horrible way to look at it if I was the owner, but that's what Jason uh, Hayward's opinion is as a player on the situation. So it appears that as much as people are like, just keep pushing and getting it done, 
it may take a while longer before anybody really feels like they have to give in. Mike Trout is t- Mike Trout is letting people know just how much goes into a collective bargaining agreement. When he said we have to do it for the next generation, they also have to do it for the previous generation because the previous generation did it for them. I was always told that you know this generation's ceiling is the next generation's floor. You got to you got to understand it. Look, man, we we got to leave the game better than we found it because look at these owners. Jason Hayward is letting you know we know how these owners thinking. We're not crazy. You know how much got you know how much they learned about uh you know uh the business of baseball two years ago when they only had sixty games. You learn a lot about how the fact that why were the owners willing to take six again? Because they still was able to make some type of money. When you look at the fact that not every team, like Kevin, we broke down how much the the Braves made every game. That's a successful franchise. When you look at the worst franchise in baseball, how many games do we need to play to still turn a profit? I give it to Mike Trout because Mike Trout is showing that, look, man, I understand that I'm one of the faces. Some people consider him the face of baseball. I know what I'm doing this for. I got the biggest contract in baseball history, so I'm going to be set for life on top of the fact that I still have endorsements, but I play with some really, really good people that that are fighting and stretching the claw for that league minimum every single year, so I got to do it for the next generation and the, and the I mean, uh, and the, uh, and the, and the previous generation. But, look, I, I give these players a lot of credit. When you are looking at what baseball is doing, I know we said during the pandemic, everybody was trying to utilize the pandemic to make sure all eyes on them to do that, like the basketball in the bubble and NASCAR and golf and football. Everybody's listen. If you every single every single uh, league has collective bargaining, the NFL could really really look at baseball and say, "Dude, how did you guys do this? How did you guys?" Because look, every player doesn't know each other. Everybody doesn't know Mike Trout just because I'm in MLB. But when I but but if I play for you know the Marlins, right? And I'm saying to myself, dude, Mike Trout is really doing this for us. That's what you can appreciate. But what Mike Trout is also saying is, we want to play. So for anybody that said we don't want to play, and guess what? Why can't you play? Because because the door is locked. I can't even get in. And I'm Mike Trout because we got owners that are saying that we are selfish. Are we? Or that are crying broke? All you got to do is look at the two teams that can show you their records. <laughs> you you don't even want to see the Yankees in the, in the Red Sox uh, financial records because you'll be like, what? So all I'm saying is I appreciate Jason Hayward. I appreciate Mike Trout because I think sometimes we think it's just cut and dry. It's a deal. Take the deal. Nope. We got to, we, It's a lot of yes that's got to happen for us to agree to an ultimate yes. And for these owners – these are the same people who did not even want to talk to the players. We act, y'all. We act as if that we we don't forgot. We want to yeah. do arbitrator. Don't even want to deal with it. No, what? I think these posts are uh, just yeah. just to look at the perspective, the frustration, sure. the disappointment, uh, and and I think you know it's it it's tough because as fans, you're you're sitting from afar watching, wondering what's next, but you understand why the players have to be unified. You understand that as you've said, Ben, and as uh, Jason Hayward, Mike Trout, all these guys are saying is it's not just about this one thing. It's about it's about fairness. It's about the sport. It's about those who are going to play the game beyond just the guys who are currently playing. So just, man, to to read those those posts, you can sense just the utter frustration that yeah. these players have. And they're trying to, you know, eliminate service time manipulation and, and things of that nature where, I mean, I, I remember back when we were discussing it, I think, Weren't we at one point talking about how the Braves weren't going to bring up Ronald Acuna until a certain point? Not because he wasn't good, because they didn't want to start the clock on Ronald Acuna and they could get one more year of control if they just waited a couple months. The players are like, no, you, why, why would you not want the best young players in the game? Why would you leave them in AAA just because you don't want to pay them for another year? Like, put them in the game. Quit with that nonsense. And so I think there's some things out there that are, are, are the players deem worth 
uh, fighting for. I wish there was a couple other things, as I've mentioned over and over, that I wish they would add in, like a spending floor and, and things of that nature, just to make some of these teams go out and spend. And I think if you look at owners and say, are they just going to give you know Joe Random, if they got to spend you know, $70 million, are they just going to give the guy on the team that already stinks that money? Or are they going to say, well, if I got to spend it anyway, I might as well go get a good player that can, you know, help me make this money back. Go, go, go figure. You mean like what you're supposed to be doing uh, when, when you're an owner. Uh, so I think there's some things like that, that I wish they fought harder on, but uh, we will see if the owners really want to get a deal done or if they're willing to miss a month. We know during COVID year, uh, they argued and scrapped back and forth tooth and nail about having to pay less. And by doing this, uh, yesterday, uh, if you listen to the players talk, they've now thrown more on the table that has to get negotiated, i.e., if we don't come back for a couple weeks, you've said the position (coughs) that you're not playing them. You're not paying players for missed games, which on the surface you're like, okay, but you are the one doing the lockout. And you have the Players Association attorney uh, sitting next to Tony Clark last night at their press conference saying, well, that is the league's position on that. I.e., oh no, we're about to argue about that too. If we come back, you're going to pay us for the full 162, even if we only play 150 games. So they're going to argue about that now. So you've already added more things uh, onto the list that you have to get done just to get this done. So I think uh, by Major League Baseball digging in, you're just making things worse. And again, I think there's one thing a lot of people can agree on. This is the one league, well, maybe the NHL, but this is probably the one league that could ill afford something like this. The NFL, we're, I've said this for years, we're football addicted. We, are, we, we, are, we, we can't do without it. The NFL could go away and say, we're only playing six games. Oh, great, thank God. We, we get six games, give me the Super Bowl, and they'll be back. Basketball, I think they could go through a little bit, I think largely because during the half of their year that football's playing, most people are like, yeah, I'll catch a game here or there, but it's not a big deal. If they went away and came back in January, most people would be like, okay, good, glad you figured it out. Baseball is the one sport where it's like you start when everything else quits, right? You Football stops, you start spring training. Basketball, college basketball starts, you have opening day. And you kind of have some of those things all yourself, and you're going to miss all of that. And in the interim, other stuff is just going to keep right on along and, uh, and trugging along with, in regards to college basketball, the NBA, golf, NASCAR, all of it's going to keep going. And you're just going to sit over there on the side and, and bicker and, and argue it out. I, it's going to come down to that owner who has influence. Because do understand, when you talk about owners, when it comes to, like, NFL collective bargaining, I mean, we're talking about Robert Kraft. We're talking about Jerry Jones. We're talking about the owner of the Seahawks. We're not talking about all the owners in the room. Just because I'm an owner don't mean that, that you know, I'm a part of the, like, decision-making process. It's going to take the owners, you know, of, of the Yankees. It's going to take the owners, you know, of the, of the Red Sox, of the Dodgers, saying, look, fellas, look. I mean, at a certain point, this is going to get ridiculous. Because at a certain point, like – if we would have found a way to make this thing still happen, you know, our ultimate scheme doesn't get pulled on. But, but but these players are smart. Jason Hayward, like, do we know what y'all doing? Like, you think just because I, I don't have to be an owner to understand how owners think. I don't have to own these teams to understand what you guys are doing. But you know what I've always been? I've been the product. I've been the product in high school. I've been the product in the minor leagues. I know what sells. What sells is the game, not the team. People aren't showing up because you're the, you know, people. Well, yeah, they're going to show up because you're the Yankees and the Dodgers and the, and the Braves. But what about the teams they showing up to see who the, who the Braves are playing? Hey, man, because sometimes, hey, man, how you get these, who they playing today? Like, somebody will say, okay, if, if, if LeBron, right, is playing the Magic, the Magic don't sell out. They sell out LeBron's there because I want to see him. 
So you got to take all those things. But I give these players a lot of credit. Like, the, you know, maturing as a player, to me, I didn't understand that was supposed to be away from the field. Dude, you got to understand how to bargain with these people. And I just think that I just think that what happens now, Kevin and BJ, is you're you're seeing why owners don't like these players now because they smarter, and they don't just have lawyers and all these different things. I mean, if the commission of baseball is the absolute war, if that's who you tried out there, <laughs> and you mad at the players, don't be mad at yourself. Yeah, because that's the guy who was obviously you know talking on your uh, behalf. Yeah, hundred percent. We've got more to come here. It's three and out Southern Pigskin Radio Network. Good to have you here on this Wednesday, Kevin, BJ, and Ben. Glad you are with us. Got a little college basketball coming up. Uh, for you, 615, Xavier and St. John's, as we get closer to conference tournaments uh, beginning this weekend at some of the smaller conferences and also next week, Power 5 conferences. And we've seen, uh, what was it, BJ, the uh, the SEAC tournament going on, the uh, Savannah State Lady Tigers 26-1 and into the uh, the quarterfinals, or yeah, into the semifinals, yeah, I Yeah, say. beat uh, Fort Valley State 91-64 today, but 26-1, and absolutely balling. So congratulations to uh, Savannah State just uh, the Lady Tigers just having a remarkable season. Listen, man, you hope they can keep it up. I mean, twenty six and one is no slouch. I just think that when you, as you know, as these tournaments or whatever get closer, you want to be playing your best basketball. You may have only lost one game. If that ain't momentum, nothing is. <laughs> Absolutely. So, congratulations to them. We've got uh, some college basketball coming up in just a little bit at six fifteen. Appreciate Logan Booker, nine sixty, the ref, joining us here in the final hour. Also, Sean Elliott, head football coach at uh, Georgia State. Uh, joined us, and back in the first hour, John Shipley of the Jaguar Report and Bud Ellis joined us talking about the MLB lockout. If you missed any of that, you can go to ESPNCoastal.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or go to our YouTube page at ESPN Coastal on YouTube and get a podcasted version of the show each and every day. We'll see you tomorrow here on 3 and Out.